still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends And you are our friends And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here On another winter's day here in 2023 I'm the great Brian Last, your host And we have all the usual shenanigans and even a review, and maybe more, coming up later on in the show. But, of course, we have to begin today by talking about the tragic news, the passing of Jay Briscoe. And to do that with me, of course, the leader of the cult of Cornette, Mr. Jim Cornette. (sighs) Well, shit, I didn't know how I was going to start this to begin with, but now I'm just flummoxed. Um... You know, I I wish sometimes, Brian, we were like normal people. Instead of doing a podcast, when something really bad happens, we can just avoid human contact for a month or so and eat a lot of greasy food. And, you know, but we've got to talk about this right after it happens because same thing I said with Bobby Eaton. If we don't do it now, we can't ever do another show because that's the first thing we got to talk about. It's that important. And... You know, a lot of times when shit like this happens, even if you really like or love the person or have known them however long, it's wrestling, folks, let's face it. Unless it's old age or, you know, cancer or some kind of unpreventable illness, in many cases, when you talk about something like this, you well, you know, personal habits or lifestyle, you know, he should have taken care of himself. You know, that t- there's some mitigation at least in that, but in this case, there's not because it's fucking ridiculous. Through no fault of his own, he's minutes from his house, from the, the farm where they all live, the family all lives, you can, you know, see everybody in the goddamn family. I think the way I've seen everything laid out, they all live there on the farm. And minutes from there, taking his kids to school, or not actually not, not to school, but to cheerleading practice or whatever at the school, and some fucking woman, girl, whatever, um... It, 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 this was not, they weren't on the interstate. I don't, people can't picture Laurel County and Sandy Fork and, you know, Delaware. It's rural. It was a two lane road, probably with, they may have been the only traffic. Who the fuck knows? And the woman just for 
uh, some unknown reason crosses over from her lane, cross the middle lane, hits him head on. Boom. And she's dead, so we won't get a explanation from her ass over this. I'm, I hope maybe they found a cell phone laying around because if, if they do a alcohol content test and that comes up negative, you know, nobody can fucking exist without texting on the phone in the car anymore. But nevertheless, so both of his daughters are still in the hospital. And I mean, it's not like people are. Uh, you can't just be constantly hounding this family. Well, how, how are the daughters? So the last I heard was what they had posted. It was a day ago that uh, one was in surgery, you know, a back surgery, which doesn't sound good. And the other one was stable, but still in, you know, critical condition or whatever. But just taking them to cheerleading. And... I got a uh, I got an email uh, I got a number of emails not only personal but also to my website but this from I don't know this guy named Scott but he's from he's a listener and he's from uh Laurel County or Sussex County Laurel Delaware I said Laurel County a few minutes ago whatever the case Scott from up there in Sussex County he wrote, I can truly say that our little community our little community has never been so heartbroken than to hear the news of Jay's passing. Schools and businesses are closed. They closed the school district for the day in honor of, of them because of what Jay and his family meant up there. But Schools and businesses are closed. Social media is exclusively an outpouring of love for Jamin Pugh and his family. Jay was a frequent sighting out and around Sussex County, Delaware. I've never met a more friendly and down-to-earth human being in my entire life. It didn't matter who you were, what color your skin was, or your sexual preference. Jay was a friendly face to all. I was proud to call him friend. <clears throat> and look to him as an example of what a father should be. I can only hope to be half the father that Jay was to his children. He was an A-plus father up until the very end, as he was killed taking his little girls to cheerleading practice. Our community will never be the same after this horrible tragedy, but he will never be forgotten around these parts. Jay Briscoe was a legend, and his memory will live on forever. This guy meant so much to the people up there that knew him, not even because he was a wrestler. They they knew him. It's a small town, a small area up there. We used to make, you know, jokes about Sandy Fork, Delaware on Ring of Honor television and the, you know, the number one sons of Sandy Fork. But it's true. It's Delaware sounds like it's in the Northeast and et cetera. And there are obviously big city elements, Wilmington, but this is as rural as you can get. And Jay, he was, uh, I didn't even realize to the extent he was involved till I read some of the articles and 
God, you know, Mike Johnson, again, on PWInsider.com, did a great piece that you need to look up. But Jay was coaching uh, to his kids, his son, who wasn't in the accident, thank goodness, uh, but was coaching his kids' sports teams and helped out at the school there. And not only that, but it wasn't a rib. You know, when we talked all those times on Ring of Honor television, going back to when I was there 10, 12 years, 13, 14 years ago, whatever it was, um, of the Briscoe family, you know, they had that RV, that giant RV that they would drive to the Manhattan Center for the big matches in New York because their mother and their father and the, the sister, their cousins, kids, they always had their family around them. And they tr- they would turn down plane tickets to be able to, you know, drive and bring the family that had uh, Papa Briscoe, their dad, I love that fucking guy had supported them from the time he helped teach them how to themselves, you know, how to wrestle at first in the backyard before they ever got any training. And that's something that we, we knock self-trained wrestlers because of the wide variety of self-trained wrestlers that you can tell. And the ones that don't ever seek any training after that or don't take criticism or don't take advice or whatever the case. These guys were self-trained, but they fit none of that other category. They were Bobby Eaton's because they were they saw it and they loved it and they could naturally do the movements. And it is somehow they were also able to translate it into figuring out how to fucking work once that they got around people who could, and they osmosis that too. But as past being wrestlers, we'll get to that shortly. Just the, I can't imagine what's going on with the family because of how, if you, you know, found anybody in the wrestling business that was more in love with and loved and wrapped up in their family, it would be the Briscoe. It couldn't, there couldn't be anybody more. So, and you've seen, I don't know when, I mean, it looked like a head of state would have passed away on Twitter from everybody currently in the wrestling business or that's ever been in a locker room with them or, or, or involved with anything to do with Jay's career. I mean, you can tell when people are just, Oh, we're sorry. Something happened. No, this is, everybody is torn up and that's, you know, that's hard to find, and it's more than like some legend from goddamn Attitude Era was gone. It's, it's it, you know, even though Jay was was not on national television, everybody that interacted with him, the fans that have seen the Briscoes are broken up, and the people who've worked with him, and everybody that's interacted with him, and so. Uh, I don't really know which direction to go with this from here, except that it's just, it's when something like that happens through, through no fault of anybody's doing a completely routine, wonderful thing that they are dedicated to doing for their children. You know, 
Help me figure out a direction here. Well, I want to talk more about the man because you got to know him and his family because you got to know them. But let's go back to the beginning because in the early days of Ring of Honor, there were some names that were kind of indie superstars. And then there were a couple names that stood out because of the name Briscoe. Who are these guys calling themselves Briscoe? It's a big name to... Even though, there's, <laughs> yeah. even though there's an E at the end, it's a big name to yeah. stand up to. And when I first started seeing Ring of Honor, and they were very young. They didn't have hair. I mean, they were very yeah. young. But they stood out. And like you said, and I never even thought about the Bobby Eaton comparison, but the movement, the way their bodies moved in the ring, whether they were doing crazy stuff or just the basic stuff, especially as they got older, it really stood out. What were your first impressions of them? Because you were in Ring of Honor, what, 2003, 2004? It, it was 2004. Uh, and For the I'm Midnight Express sure. reunion, you yeah. started doing it, yeah. Yes, and, uh, and it, well, I think I had even done maybe the first Ring of Honor show before the Midnight reunion, but Gabe, nevertheless, Gabe had, uh, Sapolsky, had called me, and he had this, these young kids, and he wanted to know if I would come up and make a show. I can't even remember. Was it Dayton, Ohio? Because that was the closest they ever got to Louisville. Or maybe I went to Philly the first. I don't know. But he said, these kids I've got, they're, you know, they're young, but they're really they're good. They're going to be good, and I'd like you to manage them. We're going to put our belts on them. What? Okay. And he told me the Briscoe brothers, and I laughed, right? I'm thinking Jack and Jerry, and I thought, okay. And, I, you know, there was an element of uh, roll my eyes into Briscoe's, just the idea of the name, but okay, whatever. And I went and did, and again, what tremendous kids with tremendous attitudes. But again, then Mark was seven, Mark would have been 17 and Jay would have been 19, maybe, or, you know, right before those birthdays, whatever the case. and. Like you said, they had no hair. They had crew cuts, and they they were they they looked like shit. And I mean that in the nicest way for because they they didn't look like anything. They I think they were amateur wrestlers. I think they were still wearing the shoulder strap thing, like in just a singlets and boots and crew cuts and no beards and just teenage kids. And I was like, well, okay. But then when they got in the ring, and even though they were, you know what, uh, and God, this has been a bad couple of days for me because I'll fucking digress for a second. I, Dark Side of the Ring was here yesterday at the castle. It's no se secret they're going to have season four. And I was talking about other people that I've known or worked with in the past that are gone. So it's been a great time for that. But as somebody, another subject was Terry Gordy that I made some comments on as in relation to something that they're doing. And I said, well, I first saw him when he was 16 years old. And at, he was big and he had the size and he could do the shit. But he, could, he was kind of klutzy because he was 16 years old. And but he was a puppy with big paws, right? Um, the Briscoes were puppies with big paws. Do they say that in New Jersey, Brian? I'm sure someone does, yes. Somebody probably does, but a puppy with big paws in down south, you see that he's going to be a big dog, right? He's got big paws. He's going to grow into it. They were puppies with big paws because they just, nobody at that point, I mean, how could they, for fuck's sake? They're teenagers. Nobody had really, they hadn't been around enough people that knew to explain Okay, you can do all this stuff, but let's, when should you do it and how should you do it and don't step on each other's 
stuff, right? Just typical stuff that when guys are green and they're teenagers. And so at the time, and I, but anyway, I enjoyed them as people and you could tell they, and they could do the shit, right? They just, again, had no look. And who have I said is the best looking, most real gimmick, not only in fucking tag team wrestling, but maybe in all of wrestling today? Who have I been saying it for several years now? The fucking Briscoes. They went from fucking tights and, you know, faces. Yeah, there they are with no hair, no beard, no whatever the fuck to the best looking fucking most real thing in the wrestling business. So it can happen. And you could really make an argument, and I don't know if you should say an argument or just a statement. Despite the success that FTR has had in the ring, and of course, with critical acclaim the last year, despite even what the biggest Young Bucks fan thinks of them in terms of actual tag teams, the best tag team of the last 20 years is probably the Briscoes. Well, yeah. I try to explain it like the, the FTR are technically the best tag team in the ring, I think, in the business. A as far as professional wrestling, tag team wrestling, execution of things, even psychology of it, it, they, I've said the only fault they have is when they fucking get overconfident in their opponents and run off and leave them, right? Otherwise, not, they're flawless. But as far as a look and as far as promos, which is part of the package, the Briscoes were stronger in that category, obviously. And so it's a one-two fucking situation, I think. But as I've said, the Briscoes are, were perfect in look and perfect in sound and fantastic in the ring. So they might even have to have the knot. We'll, we'll not litigate it right now. But from, from that period of time, in 2004 and 2005, I was working with Gabe on different shows, and I managed them several times. And like I said, as people are wonderful, and they were respectful to everybody in the business, but especially to learning shit and to taking advice and whatever. I was going to ask you about that because we hear a lot nowadays, and every veteran that comes out of you know AEW will say a lot of these guys, or all of these guys, or most of these guys don't want advice. They don't seek it out, but they certainly don't want it. What were these guys like? What were the Briscoes like when they were young in terms of taking advice? The opposite. Uh, oh, and, and it would be like a yes, sir. I had to tell him a number of times early on, please don't call me, sir. I'm old enough as it is. But, you know, no, they wanted to know. And, and that's why they learned. And then I'll forget to say this later. So I'll say it now because I'm it, it's not chronological. But the last several times I've dealt with them. They're doing the same thing that we were there. They've learned and they're trying to help other guys and, or, you know, pitch in and say, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. Not in a not in a way like do this and do that. But, hey, brother, you know, because Jay was always who somebody tweeted the first time I met him. I asked it may have been generico said, what do you guys want to do? And Jay said, hey, fuck it. Let's go, let's go out there and fucking kill it. He would and, and he'll be excited to help do that with other talent also. So it came, but anyway, and that's a th from in those early years. Yes. Puppies with big paws. Did I ever dream they were going to look like this uh, 18 years later, whatever? No. Uh, but they, at the same time, then I left ring of honor for what? Three years because of the TNA situation. I was with them and ring of honor and they, the TNA pulled their talent. 
And I've explained this. I could, I had a different contract, but I couldn't fucking show up. They can't get Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. They'd have booted me out of the building. But there was no breakup. So I went back in 2009, and there it's five years later. And now the big pause, now the Briscoes, all of a sudden, they've picked up everything. I mean, they didn't look exactly like they look today. I don't think they were as ripped. And I don't think Jay had the dreadlocks yet, but they had a look. And their matches, not only were they doing all the shit that they were doing before, but they were exciting and they made more sense and they'd come along. And I was like, oh, the dim boys have grown up. And it was it was exciting because you could, you know, not having followed everything they were doing for three or four years and then boom, see them again, the difference was astounding and it was so much more positive for the better, right? And that's when, I mean, obviously, uh, at first, Adam Pierce was the booker. And yeah, the Briscoes are figured in. The Briscoes were always figured in. I'm not saying that I was the, you know, the only proponent they had. And then when Delirious got to book, yes, the Briscoes are figured in. But when Sinclair bought the company, my, there, there was a lot of great talent in Ring of Honor at the time. But not, I thought the Briscoes were two of the four or five most important people for television because they were so visual and they were so different and they were so real. Can we stop for one second just yes. to recap a little of their history? They've been working, if not exclusively, predominantly for Ring of Honor from the beginning of their career up until this point. Ring of Honor was a videotape business or a DVD business. Eventually, they had the HD Net Show. And then with the Sinclair purchase, they got TV on Sinclair's Sinclair, on Sinclair syndicated network. So the Briscoes really had no exposure to other than shooting promos for a video camera for a DVD release. They didn't have much exposure to doing any TV at all. No, and that's, that's part of the reason why that I was excited about Ring of Honor getting on Sinclair, because a lot of those guys had not had much or any television exposure, so they hadn't really been ruined in terms of people's mind as preconceived notions or whatever. And, you know, even though they had only been doing videos, they'd still been talking because Gabe did promos and everybody, Ring of Honor did promos even when they didn't have television because the videos had interviews too and the blah, blah, blah. And then the website came along. So they'd had some practice, but at the same time, Mark and Jay were just being Mark and Jay. And, you know, just, I mean, they didn't yell and scream and threaten to bash people's heads in in the locker room, but the the interplay between the two of them were, and it, it, then it got to the point where I especially fleshed it, helped them flesh it out in Sinclair or encouraged them to flesh it out where Mark did the fills, Jay's doing the main part of the promo, and then Mark comes in with those classic fucking things that Mark, Mark wrote all of his shit because how do you write that? Right. But, and sometimes they'd say shit in the locker room. And that's why I would say, wait, remember it or I'll write it down, say it on a promo. Because, you, <laughs> you know, no, it wasn't like we were writing for them. We were just encouraging them how to do themselves on television. And so that was, 
And that was the thing. And and from the start with, uh, obviously with Sinclair, the Briscoes were, as I said, were always figured in. And that's why even like Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin had had WWE exposure on television and with Kurt Angle and blah, blah, blah. But they'd been gone for a couple of years. They hadn't been beaten into powder, you know, and they could still go in the ring. So I've got them involved specifically so they could work with the Briscoes because, and we managed to get a multiple dynamic out of it because at first people were thrilled to see Haas and Benjamin because they were names. And then when, when they started fucking with the, you know, people that they liked from ring of honor, then they kind of were heels. So we, and then we had the Briscoes for a while turn heel because they said, fuck it. We got screwed and they would do this. We got screwed. So we're going to fuck everybody up. The Kings of Wrestling were in a mix too. You had a great tag team division well, there. Well, and and there again is the even before Sinclair, because that's we lost Hero and Claudio right when we were getting Sinclair Television. But the HD Net shows, uh, you know, were out there. But um, ever get the Honor Club for fuck's sake, everybody, because a lot of these matches are on there. But they had. Two with Hero and Claudio and, and old Shane Hagedorn, their manager, Kings of Wrestling. One was in Toronto in 2011. This was, this may have been either before or right after. I think it was right after the Sinclair purchase, but it had been booked before. But it was the Briscoes against Hero and Claudio in a goddamn, I, I don't know if it, we called it a Toronto street fight. I don't know if Toronto's noted for their fucking throwdowns up there, but it was a fucking anything goes. It was a street fight match because it was built to in the fucking angle for weeks, weeks, months, and months. And not only did they do all of their shit, because Hero and Claudio, at the time, I was comparing to the Midnight Express in terms of who's the best in-ring heel team in the business because they could work with, they could work the young guy style and then they could work a fucking pro wrestling tag team match. And hero was such a, a fucking, I mean, this in the most loving way, a wrestling nerd about all styles that he could do everything. And, you know, he, Claudio learned a lot of what he learned from hero. But anyway, um, so they were having great tag team matches. We have the street fight match in Toronto and I gave them some of the old, territory street fight stuff that nobody had done in at that point 20 years or whatever the fuck it was and they loved it and not only the briscoes as i said hero loved all that shit he was receptive but they were able to work that into their shit and you know we did the the because a lot of times they would get so excited the briscoes would that they would do, Mark would do something big while Jay was doing something big over on the other side of the ring or out on the floor at the same time and i said don't don't not do your shit. Just don't do it at the same time as the other guy. Slow to build here. Make this payoff. People will pop more if you just set it up and, you know, then foil it later, whatever. So we did, they did the thing where they tied, I believe it was, it was probably Jay. They tied Jay's, basically got a rope and tied him neck, his neck around the ring post where he was choking and couldn't breathe. And he's tied, he can't get away. And then they're double teaming his brother. And finally, I think one of the ring crew guys comes over the railing and pulls a pocket knife out of his goddamn pocket and cuts Jay loose while he can still fucking breathe and he slumps to the ground. That was taken from an actual real life incident where they tied 
the baby face to the ring post, and a fan from the front row came over the rail with a goddamn knife and cut him loose. And then, so Jay comes out from under the ring with the goddamn fire extinguisher to fucking blind the heels and start to come back, and everybody's bleeding, and then they broke a table. And the fucking place went ballistic. I loved that match because it it was Ring of Honor, and it was a Toronto crowd, and Ted Reeve Arena held, what, 1,200? We sold that one out, believe it or not, folks. And they loved that shit, and it was part modern wrestling chaos and part, you know, old, old school psychology that these guys got. And then the, the other one, were you there for Papa Briscoe's six man in the Manhattan center? I don't think so. Every single ring of honor show you ever asked me to come to, they were on the show. I thought about that the other day, every single one of those shows, obviously. Oh yeah. But I, I, I don't know if I saw that. I may have, I was going to ask you, Whose idea was it? When did he first start getting involved in? Obviously, they weren't doing TV before that, but whose idea was it to get him involved in that stuff? Because he was great. You know me. And I thought, well, God damn, because these guys wanted to make wrestling as emotional and meaningful as possible. Like I said, he and Claudio and the Briscoes. And... The Briscoes were known by the Ring of Honor fans and by everybody who knew them as being so involved with their family. And it was not uncommon for their family to be around. So on the HDNet show, and goddamn, you know, I hope that, I'm pretty sure it was. I don't want to lie, but I'm pretty sure that it was either going to air on or we were shooting it on or something. It was around the time of Father's Day, okay? Because this was probably the, the insemination of the idea. And, well, Papa Briscoe, the Briscoe's father, who, by the way, is, if you haven't seen him, is twice as jacked up. He's, at the time, he was, what, well, I guess still, but he was 30 or 40 pounds bigger than either Mark or Jay. He's fucking, he looks like Bullet Bob Armstrong if he came from Delaware. Big arms and fucking gray hair, but he can cut a promo because he's a wrestling fan, too. And he's got a voice. Anybody saw the the uh, fight at the chicken farm between Mark and Jay? He was the referee, right? He was, all right, boys, get it out of your system. <laughs> so anyway, there is fucking uh, uh, Papa Briscoe at ringside, Father's Day, whatever the case may be. And Shane Hagedorn, the obnoxious manager of the Kings of Wrestling. God, it's been 12 years. I can't even remember exactly what was said, but the point is he made a comment an ill comment about the briscoes and their parentage to papa briscoe's face and papa briscoe slapped him naked and hid his clothes he just fucking slapped the shit out of hagado and here comes the kings of wrestling and i believe it was hero that hit that fucking elbow on papa briscoe and down he went and as gary hart would say the shit as they say, brother, was on. And now it was a a personal blood feud between the Briscoes and the Kings of Wrestling. And long story, folks, again, you know, the Honor Club, I don't know what they got on there, but I actually, I'm going to try to check out these two matches because I've been thinking about them and I haven't seen them in 12 years. But we went to New York and God, was it the Manhattan Center or was that in Hammerstein? I can't remember which. But it was a six-man tag with the Briscoes and Papa Briscoe 
against the Kings of Wrestling and Shane Hagedorn and the Ring of Honor fans online from Bratislava and Yugoslavia and all points south of Brazil were just up in arms. They're doing up with, they're putting their father in a red. We wanted a six star match from the Tokyo Dome. This horse shit. God damn it. This old Southern wrestling bullshit. We can tell Cornette's there. And when we came to the night of the match, which by the way, whichever venue it was in, in the Manhattan center was full. Every seat was full. And those people in New York, the hardest audience, supposedly, for smart fans, they came unglued by the time they got to the finish of that fucking thing because Papa... And first, they, they did not give a shit for Papa Briscoe, even when he walked out and they saw what he, what he looked like, that he had come ready for bear. But by the time that he hit the fucking... Road Warrior Hawk clothesline off the top rope onto one of those bastards that had to take his stiff shit. The place was coming unglued for Papa Briscoe. He put the work in. They they worked out a match, and Papa did his shit, and the people loved it, and and the Briscoes triumphed. And that was another one of my favorite matches because it was real. It was lit. This is what the guy helped teach his sons how to wrestle in their backyard of their farm. And now they're in a feature match on a sold out ring of honor show. And we had to make Papa Briscoe take a payoff. He, he, and we gave it, and by the statute of limitations run out, I got money and we gave it to him in cash under the fucking table as a thank you. And he tried to give it back to us. And he said, oh, no, no. I said, what the fuck? And they brought the whole family up in the RV. And you've never seen grins on anybody's faces like that. I love now that I think about it. That I mean, it wasn't like we were bringing Papa Briscoe in to be a goddamn recurring, you know, contender for the title. But that they got to team with their father in fucking New York, probably sell out in the Manhattan Center or wherever it was, whichever bill, whichever room. Final battle, twenty ten, Manhattan Center. There you go. There you go. That was, you know, that was probably one of the greatest nights of their life, and I was just liking it because it was great old fashioned wrestling. But those are two of my favorite matches that they had. Um, but anyway, and then, um, you know, what was it? Obviously, I was gone um, when the when Jay won the world title, and I was. I was all in favor of that because he was a fantastic single also, but my fondness for tag team wrestling, I just always preferred the brothers together because they were, the, you know, again, can you say Jay was the best in the world as a single? In a lot of ways, maybe yes, yeah, especially when he was the champion there, but they were definitely the best tag team, you know, at that time. And, and now with FTR, as we said, one and two, depending on your preference. So, you know, and that's, as a matter of fact, they did a thing with, with Sinclair, Mark Davis, the, um, the guy who was the head of production for Ring of Honor. And well, the, not only the early days when he was the production for Ring of Honor, but then when they actually hired people and got a department, he was the head of that too. 
Uh, but we put him on the bus one time on the on the RV to with the camera, and they did an hour TV special on on the road with the Briscoes and at the farm and with the family and the whole nine yards. Because that that was what the point I was going to make, and I never got to a little while ago. They were so important for television because it was so different, and they were so good at everything. It, it related the promos and the the gimmick and the visuals of, of having the farm and not having to work any of that, and just the things and the on the on the bus with the family, whatever. That they were always, uh, as far as I was concerned, going to be figured into whatever we did on television with Sinclair. You know, because that was kind of the epitome of Ring of Honor was supposed to be where the young, you know, wild-ass personalities and and or badass wrestlers or fighters that don't do the phony showbiz stuff want to go. They were perfect for that. But at the same time, and you know what? It was, God damn it, I can't remember now whether it was under Kerry's administration or under Sinclair's administration. But despite how much we loved them and wanted to depend on them and the whole nine yards, the time where they were going to get a look by the WWE and Jay sent the tweet. And at that time, we had heard from them, obviously, that they had an opportunity and it... It wasn't like that they were dangling already a giant contract in front of them, but as I recall, the way it was relayed to me, they were going to bring them to Florida for a week and give them a tryout, the WWE I'm talking about. And I said, well, that doesn't sound like a fucking brass band welcome with open arms, but to the credit of whoever administration it was, um... I think it may have still been Kerry, but it might have been Sinclair, but we were going to... No, it was probably still Kerry. But we were going to let them out of whatever we had with them if they had an opportunity, because everybody wanted Mark and Jay to have have the biggest contract or the most success or whatever that they could have. And... Because obviously, and I'll admit it in a guilty fashion, when I heard that the tweet had caused them to rescind the invitation, I was kind of relieved because I I didn't think that the WWE, and history has probably borne me out on this, I didn't think the WWE would let the Briscoes be the Briscoes, and with the Briscoes not being the Briscoes, I was afraid it would all be for naught and they would have ended up happier staying in Ring of Honor. Um, But I did remark to Delirious at the time, I believe, that it was the first million-dollar tweet ever sent in history. Because you you couldn't... Well, I don't know, because then there was also the the, uh, comment from the WWE one time, I can't remember which one of the brain trust it was, that the Briscoes were not cosmetically pleasing which was the exact reason why they should be on fucking television. Because as we mentioned with the young rock trying to recreate the superstars, of the past, nobody looks like that. And they had a look, not everybody's look. So can we talk about the tweet for a second? Just because yeah. so much of 
everything after that point, at least in terms of wrestling, it kind of goes back to you that. You know what? Hold on. Hold a thought on the tweet because I got one more story to tell because then we'll talk okay. about the tweet because I'm, I'm going to probably get cranky about that. I went back after I was gone. That made a lot of fucking sense. Is this, is when, this a letter I, or are you saying this? I, no. <laughs> God damn it. Um, when I went back to work with Ring of Honor in conjunction with the Crockett Cup in what was that, 2018 or 19, they did at Charlotte, North Carolina, they did the pay-per-view out of the new arena up there around Concord, wherever the fuck it was, and in the first round... It was the Briscoes versus the Rock and Roll Express. And I was doing commentary on the show, but they also asked me to produce that match, which I was happy to. And so there was, I'd left at the end of 2012, and there's seven years later, I come back, and there's the Briscoes again. Well, and of course, big smile and big grins. But now, as much of a difference as I'd seen, you know, from what, 2005 to 2000. 12 now there's multiple time more now they've got the whole gimmick is blossoming out and jay's ripped and, and and both of them they've had jay had some serious knee injuries and i think mark has had a few things but i don't know how they they were able to stay in the shape they were in but they still they did that shit and it looked like it would kill you but they could do it and anyway they had the whole package together and they were really just they looked like ass kickers and now they're working with the Rock and Roll Express, and to be honest, I mean, they obviously, they loved it because they looked at it like of if a baseball player of today got a chance to play against or with Mickey Mantle, they'd just be thrilled, even if Mickey couldn't hit the ball as far, right? You know what I'm saying. Well, in this case, you know, I honestly... I thought, well, it's the Ring of Honor fans. I don't want them to be too hard on Ricky and Robert, but they were there in large part because they needed to sell tickets in Charlotte, and Ricky and Robert were a primary reason why they sold any live event tickets in Charlotte. But I didn't want the people to think, oh, goddamn, now, you know, here's the, because there's the Briscoes, right? And there's Ricky and Robert at that age, in this day and age. So I didn't want them to have to go too long. I left it up to Jay and Mark at first, and I was like, maybe we can do you know something short where you jump and a blah blah blah, and then they get some hope. No, 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 we can do it. We we all four of us we want to have this match, and they were all fired up to have a fucking match, and they did, and the people live loved it, and it actually got quite good reviews even from the more harsher critics on the internet. But that's now Jay and Mark are obviously not leading the Rock and Roll Express, but they were able to, they had learned enough and they had come along enough that they knew how to feed those guys and make it easier for them to be the rock and roll they used to be in front of the town they were the most popular in. And that, you know, again, just professional all the way. So I, you know, that's, I guess what three almost four years ago, whatever is the last time that I got to see him or work with him. But it was just amazing the transformation through the years that you could you could see when you bopped in at different points in in their career. And they were and again with Jay 38 and Mark what 36. And if 
So they hadn't, you know, broken their bodies down to where they still look that good and can do that shit at this point. They had years more left. But Isn't it, that amazing? They were there at the very beginning of Ring of Honor. When, we, when you think about that early class of Ring of Honor stars, Danielson, Samoa Joe, Punk, AJ Styles, whoever you think about, they're all either in their early 40s or getting up there. They're still in their 30s. Jay Briscoe was not even 40 yet. I mean, what an incredible career for someone not even 40. Well, and you know, and and we'll talk about this tweet in a second, but I don't want to act like they never went anywhere but the fucking Ring of Honor. They've been to Japan and they've worked a number of independents, but a lot of the reason, and especially during the Sinclair era, and they eventually worked up to where for the few years that Sinclair was willing to spend some money, I believe they were doing all right. But it, it, at some points, they liked the Ring of Honor contract because they had a landscaping business and they worked on the legitimate family chicken farm. And they, in sometimes they didn't want to go to Japan or they turned down maybe some opportunities to do other things because they didn't want to be away from the family that long. For that, and they they liked working for Ring of Honor with their friends, and also being based out of home and having a lot of time at home for their other businesses and their family. They 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 weren't concerned. Unless, I mean, I'm sure it would be lovely, but they they weren't in all all cases more concerned about where's the money, where's the money, rather than where's my where does my family fit in and, you know, how can I contribute here the best? And they knew that they were important to Ring of Honor like Ring of Honor was important to them. You know, and on that topic, you brought up Mickey Mantle before, and it's not a perfect comparison, but if you look at Ring of Honor history, the early days with Gabe and Feinstein, the Carrie Silken era, into the Sinclair era, into Tony Khan, they're the glue. And Mickey Mantle did something that's one of the most romanticized things to do in baseball, because it rarely happens anymore, especially. He wore one uniform his whole career. Just the Yankee uniform. It's painful sometimes to see Babe Ruth in his last days as a player wearing a Boston <laughs> Braves uniform. And in a sense, like you brought up, it's a shame they didn't get that WWE opportunity. But on the other hand, it's not like their work in Ring of Honor wasn't great. And we did get an incredible body of work that's consistent. From beginning to end, there's a story there with Ring of Honor and the Briscoes. Like I said, they're the glue of Ring of Honor. You know, I, and I, I actually, until you made the baseball analogy, which I wouldn't have thought of, yeah, you know, that is, where can you find any other, I guess, single wrestler or tag team entity, whatever, that's started and Finished, and obviously Mark's not finished, but you know what, the, as the tag team, the Briscoe started and finished in one company, even though through several different administrations, and grew with that, and went from, you know, pimply-faced teenage kids to the best in the business at what they were doing. That's amazing. They didn't get the WWE opportunity, and of course, we talked, and I encourage people to go check out the YouTube channel. We talked about the tweet recently because there was the story that there was an executive with Warner Brothers Discovery who did not want them on any programming because of that tweet. And I want to say, I think I saw Sean Ross Sapp tweet out earlier. It's amazing they wouldn't let him on the air for something so many years ago that he has apologized for, yet 
the show after Dynamite was a man who just slapped his wife hosting well, a show I, with people slapping each other. Yes. And did and did you see did you see also that it's being stated that they they taped after Dynamite last which is last night was is the Thursday morning as we record this. But after Dynamite last night, they taped a tribute to Jay Briscoe that will air on the Ring of Honor Honor Club, and and kudos to Tony for doing that. But the reporting was also accompanied by that they uh, were not allowed to make the Dynamite show a tribute to Jay Briscoe like they had done to Brody Lee by the same unnamed TBS or Warner Brothers Discovery executive. Did you see that? I did see that. And, you know, I'm going to, we're just two friends talking here, letting people listen. I'm not proud of this, but I did have the thought Tuesday night. That executive, if that decision hadn't been made, who knows if he would have been there? Who knows if he would have flown out that night to go to Dynamite? And I, I regret, uh. you know, I'm saying that out loud just because it has been eating me up a little bit thinking about all that. And I want to talk about the tweet, but let me mention this. The wrestler Effie, who we've talked about a little bit in the past, does over-the-top stuff. He's openly gay, and his character, obviously, is also openly gay and does some explicit sexual stuff at times that's not for our taste. But here's what he tweeted out. Jay Briscoe showed me respect and love when everyone told me he wouldn't. If you knew Jay you knew he would uplift everyone in that locker room regardless of whatever world they came to wrestling from. The best. Rest easy, brother. And I think it's important to anyone still holding on to anything from that tweet. It was regrettable, it was ignorant, and there's no signs of anything after that point that shows that this was a hateful guy. And... Like, and I, you know, like well, I said, the, the thing with the executive has been bothering me just because, you know, I hate to, I've been thinking a lot about it and I have. And uh, but anyway, back to you. Well, and but we talked about it when we as you said, we talked about the tweet earlier in a previous show. <sighs> Besides the fact that he apologized for it uh, over and over and uh, uh, you can see the type of person he is and that everybody felt he was it hit at that point and i'm not going to go on a soapbox about this but he's one of the comments he made was he said i was crusading for the lord back then indoctrination of religious beliefs can damage people's perceptions in some cases that's all i'll say and it was also hitting him with his kids because the whole Gay marriage thing was at the crux of it because that was being discussed. And what does Jay care more about than anything else in life? His kids. And he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his kids that are told to him will happen by the fucking authority figures or whatever the fuck that he was listening to on the news. So past all that. I've got to admit now, I rescind everything I said about, well, is this really a unnamed Warner Brothers executive or is this jealousy on a part of some of the EVPs, but not even they in this situation could be that fucking asshole-ish of assholes that, that, you know, before I do, oh, maybe it's jealousy, but no, now they would, 
certainly not in this situation stand in the way of anything. So this legitimately has to be that some unnamed piece of shit who I would love to get the name of, and I promise you, if anybody can tell me his name, I'll tell a million people real fucking quick. I can promise you that. But whoever this fucking guy is that has never said anything or girl, wrong. You don't know. Or girl, I'm sorry. Executive or executive tress that has never said anything bad or done anything wrong or said anything regrettable in public or it is perfect in every way who works for a network that has never had a convicted felon on the wrestling program, Nick Gage, who has never had a convicted felon, not only a bank robber, but now a rapist, Mike Tyson, past the wrestling program. If we're doing criminal background checks on everybody, let's go to the rest of the programming. You just mentioned the network that doesn't air a television program from documented wife slapper Dana White about a bunch of mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging fucking meatheads slapping a piss out of each other over and over until one of them gets brain damage and the other one wins less cash prizes than I get selling comic books in a month. They don't do that. I don't even watch any of the rest of these goddamn shitty programs that TBS and TNT broadcast these days, or I'm sure I could find some things wrong with people on them too. So how fucking cretinous of a goddamn inhuman piece of shit, slime from the puddle of ooze of the fucking pits of hell, do you have to be unnamed woman or man that would not even let them show highlights and tributes to a guy who got killed taking his kids to cheerleading practice because of a mean fucking tweet. Fuck you. I goddamn double dog dare somebody in the sound of my voice or the fucking reach of this show to find out that name, and I promise you, I will broadcast it to the goddamn world along with any contact info that I can find out, and I would love the motherfucker to sue me. But in the meantime, why don't everybody write TBS and TNT and go, hey, fuck you. What kind of fucking pricks you employing over there now that I think about it? But anyway, yeah, that's uh, apparently now I can absolve the young bucks of any jealousy responsibility for this. It apparently really is some piece of shit that ought to be drug across goddamn razor blades and dipped in a vat of alcohol. But let's get back to this. You know, the last year, everyone's been raving about FTR, and rightly so. It's easy to forget at times that there was another team in those three matches in Ring of Honor. They didn't just hold their own. They're as good as oh, anyone. Yeah. And I think we, because FTR gets all the attention, because of all the backstage drama and everything that everyone well, knows is happening. Every, at least every once in a while, the company they work for does put them on television. So they get a little more attention, but yes, I mean, it, it, it's not even close that their best matches, both teams' best matches were with each other, but yes, you, FTR couldn't do that with anybody else because if they could, they'd have done it with somebody else. And they've, they've had different kinds of matches, but not, not that, not the essence of wrestling. 
You know, it's weird. You know, I've been thinking so much lately about mortality, just with everything I've gone through with my father. And, you know, you start thinking about things like your family, your kids, how are you going to take care of them? And, oh my God, what happens if, you know, everyone, you know, if everyone's out and something happened, you know, you start thinking about all these things. And, you know, I think it's so tough when it's an auto accident. And there's been a few occurrences in wrestling history where, you know, not to say that like the drug deaths and all these different deaths aren't bad, but when it's someone who, again, just won the tag team titles, just had three amazing matches, one will probably win match of the year somewhere. And that's the last we see of them. I mean, you know, there is something really, you know, like Moondog Maine, they just announced on TV one day, oh yeah, he died in a car accident and you never see him again. It's just, it's something, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about this. I don't have the, the exact words. I think yeah. you know what I'm saying. But the car accident in wrestling is just an extra painful one, I think. Well, see, that, honestly, that used to be before steroids became a thing that used to be the expected manner of death that wasn't old age for a wrestler if i mean when i first got into business i mean it's not everybody sat down and said, okay kid now you're probably gonna die in a car wreck but no just from history and just from hearing guys stories and just from what happened and being around you knew that in it if you didn't die of old age or something, you know, reasonably close to of some ill health, you were going to, it was a car wreck because that's how wrestlers died. Cause they were always in fucking cars. Is that in an offshoot of that Bobby Shane in a private plane, same concept, not most of the guys could afford the plane. And to, you know, to the point where one of the first things I remember, you know, when I just first got, the photography job in Louisville was Sam Bass, Pepe Lopez, and Frank Hester. And that led to, you know, the guys talking about shit. And, you know, and it, it, that was because guys didn't OD back then. And nobody had a heart attack when they were 40 because nobody had been on steroids and blah, blah, blah. So, but you were literally every day of, of your life in a car for two, three, four, five hundred 500 miles or more. And remember, I figured out I've been in a car since I got into wrestling and most of it driving, but in a car, 2 million miles, give or take however much. And, you know, something's bound to, which is why I completely do not miss any of it and don't even drive across town anymore because you never know about these fucking morons. But that that used to be the thing that would happen unless, you know, uh, as I said, it was old age or nearabouts. But that's all changed because now nobody, not a lot of guys drive and there's no territories and everything's changed. But and all the other things that they've done in the intervening years. Well, this is uh, just, it's just a heartbreaking, just everything with, you know, his kids and just the whole thing is heartbreaking. And I really, uh, and the, you know, I don't know if you saw this, this another kick in the gut. The next day was Mark Briscoe's birthday. Oh no. Yeah. I, I, well, I don't. Well, anyway, I, I don't, I'm sure I'll think of something else I should have said. At some point, um, but what? How are you going to remember your time around the Briscoes? Well, I just, again, 
I mean, it's not like I didn't like everybody else. I'm not trying to say that, but they, they were my favorites. I think I just, you know, the, the, not only to have them working there, but also cause they were always happy and, you know, and always into something or whatever the fuck and trying to help. And, and, uh, you know, that was, and I just, I enjoyed not only working with them and being around them, but the fact that they had gotten, you know, so good from, from humble origins. And that and that's why I've been a proponent over the last couple of years. What the fuck? Their, their time, you know, is not... I don't want to, didn't want to say that. It wasn't that their time was running low, but that their peak athletic years, I was so hoping they'd get to be on a national television program where a lot of people could see them and they could be themselves. And obviously in WWE, that would be all fucked up. And it would be like putting the goddamn Diaz brothers in Holiday on Ice or something. You know, it just wouldn't fit. But in AEW, they could have done their shit. And, you know, so I've just, I've been pulling for that because I was afraid that it, you know, might not get a chance to transpire. And apparently, again, because of the unnamed executive that I'd love to fucking get a finger on. But, uh, you know, that's, I, I've, Again, personally and professionally, and how can from everybody else's reaction? Apparently, I'm not alone. How could you dislike these fucking guys? It was impossible. Well, we send our best wishes and our positive vibes to the family, and hopefully, we see Mark Briscoe again wrestling at some point in the future. But with that, we will be right back with more drive through after this short commercial timeout. The drive-thru has returned, and so have we. And Jim, I wanted to ask you, uh, you brought up Terry Gordy before as one of these teenage prodigies in wrestling. There haven't been that many. There have been some great ones, though. But young Terry Gordy, very few people, I mean, Jody Hamilton, maybe, very few people have accomplished what he did before the age of 20, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, and, and of course, Jody had a an older brother, Larry Hamilton, the Missouri Mauler, and you know, they were a brother team when he main evented Madison Square Garden at that point. But, you know, at least he had a family member, Terry. From I believe I remember that he worked out some with his uncle when he was like 13. And I don't know if his uncle was a local outlaw guy or or whatever, even if that story is correct. There were even in those days in the 70s, there were always small in the South, small. There was no term independent wrestling in those days. It was just an outlaw show. And if you could find six guys that were somehow smartened up to the business that could muddle through a match, you could have a show and nobody really knew, but some guys got experience that way. Troy Graham did, but, um, but by the time he was 14, there's some of the YouTube footage of Terry out there working as Terry Mecca for those IWA TV tapings, he was a job guy, but you're, people are thinking 14 years old, he was six foot fucking four and like 230 pounds then. And you get, he's a big gangly kid with, you know, sh shaggy blonde hair. But then I saw him first time live when he was 16. Uh, he had already in that middle period of time, he had worked that Mississippi territory 
for the Kokens when they were on the outs with uh, Watts and weren't affiliated with anybody. And they'd been putting him on top and, and doing angles with him, and he'd had his head shaved at a hair match. And then he came to Tennessee at a crew cut. I just dug out uh, some of the pictures I took of him. And then uh, the next year, and he goes to Nova Scotia, worked for Al Zink. He's fucking 16 years old, but he's huge at that point. Now he's 260. And by the time that he came to work for Nick Goulas in, what was it, uh, late 78, early 79, when he and Michael had met, he'd been back in Mississippi, he and Michael had met, and they'd uh, decided to go to Tennessee together. And by that point, they put the team on top. Michael was only, what, I think 20 by that point, and Terry was 17, 18. And then, of course, Nick wouldn't uh, wouldn't play the Freebird music and didn't want to call them the Freebirds because he didn't he didn't get that newfangled rock and roll Elvis Presley shit. He thought the birds were on the marijuana pills, so Jerry Jarrett would let him play the music and call themselves the Freebirds. And he's uh, again he uh, after that he goes to Louisiana. So now in 1980 he was the same age as me, just a couple of months off. He's either 18 or 19, depending on his birthday and their main event in the Superdome. Has there ever been, he just, he did what the Briscoes did, but he did it five years earlier because he was a fucking giant kid. And there were more places with experienced talent that he could go to and get booked to learn from, from there. So the question is, there've been some teenage prodigies and Ricky Gibson was great in his own way at that but has there ever been a better 18 19 year old pro wrestler than terry gordy in the history of the business i ask you oh host of this i'm show. thinking i mean when we talk about teenage prodigies several of them have been under your auspices randy orton renee dupree well but now wait a minute ken Doan. but randy orton wasn't a teenage prodigy randy orton was 19 years old and 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 in wrestling school he wasn't main event in the Superdome. That's true. That's true. And the other guys weren't either. It was just in terms of talent that people perceived at a young age. Yes. Well, and 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 to be honest, in the modern era, you can't at that age do the things that Gordy was allowed to do in the wrestling business in those days. So it's not fair to compare. But in the days when you could, it still didn't happen very often. Tommy Tommy Rich was on top. Tommy was uh, 1975. He was 18. So he was on top when he was 19 or 20, 19 and 20 in Memphis, but he wasn't the worker Terry Gordy was in the ring. A teenage prodigy, not in the ring, but in terms of everything else, was his partner, Michael Hayes. Yes, he was uh, the, the look and the talk and the vision and the rock and roll music idea. You know, Michael had everything, but, but his work was a shit. When did Bobby Eden start working? Uh, I sound like Lance Russell now, Bobby. Well, you know, but when Bobby did Jeff Jarrett was, start working? Well, no, hold up by Jeff didn't start till he was 18. Je Jerry made him finish high school first. So he it was 86. Bobby started when he was 15 doing jobs on TV, but he was, he was on top for Nick by the time that he was 18 but it said Bobby didn't have the size, and and to be honest, Bobby, I don't 
I don't know that Bobby was ready just because he had stayed there for so long. He was ready psychologically, possibly, when he was 18 to main event the Superdome. But he was close behind. Eddie Gilbert had a lot of fanfare, but really didn't do too much that early in his, when he was still a well, teenager. No, it, it, I saw Eddie from his, you know, he had his first matches in Malden, Missouri before he turned 18 because he couldn't get a license in Tennessee. At that point, they had to commission. And and he was a good worker from the start and understood, but he was painfully thin and and a little bit, you know, awkward. It, it, so again, he, he and Tommy made him wait until he's almost finished with high school. He could work in Malden and go to school at the same time. So he wasn't, he didn't have that four or five year fucking head start that Terry got. And he didn't get nearly the head start Bobby got. And also he didn't have the, the body and the size at first, but he had the mind and the promo uh, that came. You know who probably doesn't get the credit he deserves as a teenage sensation because he did so much more? Mark Lewin. Hmm. Good point there because he, as a baby face, yeah, 18, 19 years old, he was, he was being used uh, where in several places at that age. I just looked it up, and again, it's Wikipedia, but I'm just trying to do this quickly. Debuted in 53 at the age of 16. Ah. Born in 37. So think of everything he did before up to 57. Well, and look at what he looked like when he was the Purple Haze in Florida when he was 50 <laughs> years old. He goddamn looked like Batista. Jesus Christ. The Tonga anyway, Kid. The Tonga Kid. Both of them? Well, I, I said it twice because I thought you were kept going. <laughs> I stopped you with the Tonga Kid. That was my move. Uh... <laughs> I think he was 19 when he main evented against Piper filling in for Snooker, who went to rehab and he got over big at first, but then it faded quickly. Yeah. Anyone else you could think of teenage sensations. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Ring the bell, Davey. All right. But anyway, so it, it, it and it ain't going to happen anymore because Fuck. Uh, again, not only can you not actually do that with minors these days, uh, and and people get in trouble sometimes when they do, but then also there's even if you sent a guy to the performance center when he was 14 years old, he would never get to be as good a worker as those guys were because he wouldn't be out in front of large crowds with established veterans in those period of years by the time he's 18 or 19 they would they would be in training shows or spot shows or working with guys in the developmental system but he wouldn't be actually being used to some description and i mean when i said the the mississippi territory that was unaffiliated they still drew a couple thousand people in jackson mississippi or more depending on a hot angle or you know they're they're going to greenville doing a thousand people or whatever the fuck it wasn't you know, that was small-time wrestling back then. So it, it's it's all changed. I forgot one of the other teenage sensations. Okay. Lou Thez. Oh! <laughs> How did I forget that? Well, you know, and, and in all honesty, that was almost uh, not only a different era, but a different business at that time. They basically... The, they took that kid in the gym and said, okay, he looks great and he's got a great story and he can fucking stretch most people. We're just going to fucking make him the champion. And they, you could do that back then. And it obviously worked, but anyway, Teddy Hart, teenage sensation. 
I think we've drawn a close to the subject. I'm not being serious. If you think about what people thought of him up to the age of 20, it's obviously very different now. Well, no, if we talked about what people thought of people rather than what was actually happening in the world, then we could come up with some more teenage sensations. That's a good show. Yeah, we could do a whole new show on that. Just what people think. Or we could just go to sleep. Or or possibly we could we could talk about Valentine's Day for just a moment because it's right around the corner, as you know. And I don't know if you're aware of this, Brian, but I am returning. Finally, Jim Cornette has returned to Cameo for the second annual St. Valentine's Day Massa Cameos. Or is this the third now? I've, I've lost track. Second. Saturday, June 28th, noon Eastern time. I will be putting on sale a limited number of cameos at cameo, C-A-M-E-O dot com, or just go to Jim, uh, slash Jim Cornette, or just go to jimcornette.com and click on the cameo button on the homepage. It will take you there automatically. And for your betrothed or your spouse or your sweetie or your enemy or people down the street, I will do a customized, personalized homogenized, pasteurized, and sanitized, not sanitized, video message uh, of your choosing for those people. I'll give your sweetie a kissin' or a cussin'. I will say anything that is not illegal. And actually, now that I think about it, if, if uh, there's ways that you can word these things to potentially avoid liability. So if you'd like me to threaten somebody with a thinly veiled threat... I guess we can figure out a way to make that work also. Nothing that would <laughs> nothing that would arouse the ire of the authorities or the federal investigators, but consider the way you get requests, you're going to get people saying now, say something illegal. Well, could I allude to something bad happening to a person without actually taking credit for it or fingering anyone in particular? But you love taking credit. Well, that's true. Nevertheless, <laughs> if you want <laughs> If you want a video message from me, a Saturday, January 28th at noon Eastern is the time to do it. Hop on jimcornet.com, click on the cameo button. We're going to do about we're going to put up about 80 of these cuz that's all we can do that week. Hotchkiss Featherbottom with his busy schedule and my schedule of that Brian Last gives me. So we're going to limit it to 80 so get in the first couple of hours from previous history and you will be most happy. And then after that, you can consider that your Valentine's Day gift to your loved one or hated one is all taken care of. And then, Brian, the thing to do from there would be to get a great night's sleep. What a wonderful idea. Let's start now. Well, you know what? I'll just lay down because I'm right next to, I'm very close to, I'm in the proximity of the finest American-made mattress that you can purchase with your hard-earned dollars these days, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just call your attention to one of the many models. You can see it sitting right here next to me. Take a big look at it, a big gander at it right now. One of the many models, the 14 unique mattresses that our friends at Helix Sleep provide to the fine customers of said company. I mentioned they're made right here in America. That means. When they come to you, there's no foreign material inside that can possibly cause disease or pestilence. It's The only germs that you're going to get from these mattresses are good old American-made germs. Now, some of them are still deadly, but at least you'll know you'll went out as a patriot. However, 
What you do is you go to helixsleep.com. That's H-E-L-I-X, helixsleep.com, and you just take a quiz. It takes a couple minutes. That's all because they want to find the perfect mattress for you. And once you indicate your various preferences, do you like soft, medium, or firm, or rock hard for that matter? Do you sleep on your side, your back, your stomach? Do you wake up with your orifices bleeding in the morning? Whatever you need to tell them. For them to match you to the perfect mattress that they make here in America that they can provide to you for a low, low price. They got a 100-night risk-free trial. We've talked about it before. You are completely absolved of any responsibility whatsoever for this fine product. After 100 nights, if you don't like it, they'll come to your house. They'll drag it out in the front yard and set fire to it. They won't the do whole, that. No, they they'll won't. let the whole neighborhood know that you didn't like it. Nobody will know nothing because nothing will be happening. There'll be no fire and you have nothing to worry about. But enjoy well, that mattress. Let the fire department be on standby just in case. And if you don't want to take my word for everything I'm saying, folks. Don't. Helix. You should take my word for 80% of the things that I've been saying, ladies and gentlemen, because Helix has been awarded the number one mattress award by the awards people at GQ Magazine and also over at Wired. And they've since quit publishing. Somebody got electrocuted. It's recommended <laughs> by multiple leading chiropodists and the Doctors of Sleep Medicine at the International Association of Fecal Studies in Zurich, Switzerland. That's not here in the copy. And right now, folks, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. For our listeners only, nobody else is allowed. If you didn't listen to the program, don't try to do this. Go to helixsleep.com slash JCE, helixsleep.com slash JCE, and you're going to get up to $200 off all the mattress orders and two free pillows and a fire extinguisher. Because when they set fire to that mattress, if you don't like it, you're going to need something to put it out with. They got 12,000 five-star reviews, not for the extinguisher, but for the mattresses. So go right now and do that thing. And the kids' mattress, the, the wee little kids' mattress designed for children 3 to 12 years of age. Apparently, when you make love on this mattress, you have children 3 to 12 years of age. No, it's for kids you already have. That's I see right. the copy now. That's right. And it's a wee little thing, and it's been designed or been awarded Best Mattress Winner. Well, that, that sounds an unwieldy way to word that. Awarded Best Mattress is what I would say. Former Best I, Mattress Winner was Marilyn Chambers. Well, that's true. But it, it not but from Parents Magazine. Parents Magazine no. awarded the well, children's the mattress, ad. the Best Mattress Winner. Marilyn Chambers just covered the little kids in ivory soap. And then Marilyn Chambers, in turn, was covered in various shampoo and lotion-looking substances. Back anyway, to the mattress! Back to the mattress! Get the mattress! Helixsleep.com slash J-C-E. That's right. You make it sound so easy there at the end. Slash J-C-E, Helix Sleep. We're big fans of them here in the house. We have two mattresses, and of course, the all-formed-by-Helix-Sleep couches in the library very popular. Do you have the kids sleeping on one of the, do you have them all strapped into that thing? Just put them all on one kid's mattress? Or do you have bunk mattresses? Well, we have no straps. What, what, what we have no dormitory? bed straps. Let's start with that. We have no straps for the bed. 
Oh, how do you keep them from getting up in the middle of the night? Were you strapped to the bed? My mother didn't want me wandering around. I might fall in the dark. I can't tell if you're being serious or not. <laughs> I thought everybody did that, but not just when I was a little kid. By the time I was 14, 15, I could get up and wander around on my own. I still don't know if you're joking or not. <laughs> I'm going to assume you're joking and you weren't strapped to the bed. And well, if won't... it makes you feel better to think that, I guess I'll go along with it. Well, further questions about this at another time, but Helix sleep for a good night's sleep. And Jim, several of the listeners who get great night's sleep have been sending in some quotes. From... They, they often go to sleep listening to this program. Sent in, several listeners have sent in quotes from Jade Cargill. She was recently interviewed on the Bootleg Kev podcast. Let me play you a couple of these clips. And get Is this a highly rated program we're talking about here? Or is he just looking around for things to be on? Why Bootleg? I'm not familiar with the show. It does not appear to be a wrestling show. So it's something outside of your wheelhouse here. But let's hear a little bit from Jade. We have uh, three different quotes here I want to play and get your thoughts on. Jade Cargill talking about CM Punk. Hold on. Other promotions, right? There's well, the big, the big other big promotion. I assume that's bootleg Kev. Promotion, right? There's house shows yes. th throughout the week. Yep. That aren't on TV, so people can kind of like learn without it being like memed. With the same partner, yes. Right. Yeah. You, you, usually on the house shows, you're always wrestling with the same person. Yeah. You guys, you know, that you're on TV with. So yes. you're just kind of like really out here. Obviously, you're training when you're yes. not on TV. But like all your high pressure situations, you're we're kind of going through it with you. Yeah. TV, so. I mean, for example, the first time I used a chair, I remember uh, CM Punk was like, you have to choke it up like this. And like, because they were like, oh, yeah, you're going to use a chair. I was, I'm going to use a chair. I've never used a chair in my life. How do I use a chair? And no oh, one boy. gave me instructions other than him to show me how to use a chair. And I had to perform this on live TV. And we'll see Punk's a goat. That's why. Yeah. 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 So He's wait, a great so guy. Let me stop it there for a second, just because you've dealt so much just with training. What do you think of what she's saying here? They said you're going to use a chair and no one told her anything else about it. Well, this is wrong on so many levels. I don't even know where to One, you've got, let's get the, the kayfabe world out of the way. You've got a supposed fucking champion. I can't remember what they TBS. call her belt. TBS champion. Talking about, oh, I was going to use a chair, and I've never used a chair. I don't know how to use a chair. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But secondly, why the fuck are they letting this green klutz uh, uh, telling her just use a chair and don't fucking... Let's walk through this. Let's... Uh, have you ever used a chair before? I, if I... If I ever told anybody... I mean, past goddamn, you know, in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, yes, I just say, yeah, hit somebody with a chair because everybody was a veteran. They knew what the fuck. But in OVW or even in Ring of Honor, I would make sure that everybody had the fucking general gist of the whole chair thing down so nobody got their head caved in or their teeth knocked out or whatever the case may be. So, and again, so it was up to CM Punk, who uh, among his... Many responsibilities. I haven't heard that he was, you know, being utilized as an agent. But apparently he had to walk up and say, here, don't. <laughs> that he had to tell her to choke up on it. Apparently she was going to grab the fucking ends of the goddamn thing. And that you can't control that. The ends of the legs or whatever. So, no, on so many levels, this sounds like such a fucking amateur shit show.
and it comes off to me horribly that she is not only somebody's going to say, well, Cornette, you exposed the business on here. Well, I'm not currently on their television program as one of their champions. And secondly, I don't sound like a complete clueless idiot. Just because we all follow wrestling and know that she's never wrestled anywhere else and doesn't know shit from apple butter doesn't mean that she needs to spill her guts on a podcast. It's not even uh, help me, Brian. Well, again, I'm not going to kill her just because all of the wrestlers do this nowadays. And I'm not saying that's right, but it's just the reality. of Well, the situation. No, it, this, is, this is even more egregious because it's not even yet. It was fake when I hit him over the head with a chair, but it's like, I don't know how to hit with a chair. What am I doing with a chair? <laughs> well, let's get beyond your distaste for what she's saying. Let's then get why to- is she the champion? How did she get to be the champion when she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing? Well, let's go back to what she's saying, and let's go back to what she's saying also about CM Punk. All right. Uh, so you you used the chair for the first time ever. Ever. On TV. On TV. How'd that go? To- uh, it was pretty interesting. That was a pretty, uh, that was uh, last year. Let's just move forth. I've learned my lesson, and uh, it's going to get better. Because for people, because there's a, an art to everything. Yes. And I'm a huge wrestling fan, and I always tell people, like, I feel like wrestling is one of the most di- like it. It is art. It is truly. Art. I, I love that you said that. Yes, it, it is, is art. It is an art form that is of the highest difficulty, physically, uh, emotionally, mentally. mentally, all of that stuff. Uh, and there is an art to everything you guys do, including how to hit somebody with a fucking chair so yep. you don't kill them. Yeah. So how do you do it? I can't tell you that. What you're trying to get me <laughs> caught up over here, but. I will say that it is it is an art. You don't want to completely destroy your opponent where they can't come back next week and perform or something like that. But it's all an art. We're artists and we're trying to paint a, a picture for a story of course. that our audience can follow and just respect. Now, that's the one modern thing that a lot of wrestlers say that drives you crazy, right? The whole idea that we're artists or that it's art or what are your thoughts on that? Because she's not you the know, only one saying this nowadays and you know that. But I have, I have in the past compared wrestling to a performance art because in some way it is connected to what Andy Kaufman would do when he wouldn't break fucking character and wouldn't wink at people and wouldn't let them and made them uncomfortable. When, it, when it's something that's happening in front of people's, it's a performance art. You can draw that comparison. But these knuckleheads are talking about its art like it's poetry and painting and whatever the fuck. And they can just be free to change all the rules and express themselves the way they want. And nothing is wrong. Everything's allowable. And the whole nine yards. And it's just fucking ridiculous. So the art that uh, Twinkle Toes and his ilk are expressing is not necessarily the performance art of something that at the root of it is supposed to be conflict. All right. Well, let's get a couple more quotes from her. This is Jade Cargill talking about CM Punk. You, uh, you said that you were hanging out with CM Punk quite a bit. Yes. At Comic-Con. Uh, what was something that you learned from Punk? Cause he's my all time favorite. I love Punk. Just stand on what you believe. Hmm. And, and, don't be a pushover. Mm. And I admired that because coming into the business and being new, you know, a lot of people, it's like you have to almost shrink yourself a little bit. Yeah. And I know who I am. Again, I lived several lives. I've lived real life. And just because I didn't want to do this all my life or because I didn't put in the time, I refuse to let anybody look at me less than. Mm-hmm. And I refuse for anybody to treat me anything different because outside of these lines... 
I'm a human freaking being mm-hmm. and you're not going to treat me like anything else. So um, I'm not saying that anyone treated me any type of way. I'm just right. saying in wrestling. You, you hear about that in wrestling. Yeah, of course. Of course, especially on the indies. And sure. I, I'm not familiar with the indies at all, but I'm not going to be walked over. And I refuse right. for you to, to because I'm Jay Cargill mm-hmm. and outside of these lines, I'm Jay Cargill. So yeah. I'm not going to let you address me anything less. So the fact that he told me to stand on what I believe and don't be a pushover, that stuck with me. He's a great guy. Let me stop it there, because so much of the narrative we hear about CM Punk is big, bad CM Punk, and there are guys who thought he was a cancer. We know what Jericho thinks. We know what the Bucks in their camp think. We've always said there are other wrestlers there, men and women, who had positive experiences from CM Punk, and here's one of them saying it saying it out loud. And uh, apparently, um, the uh, from what I understand from things that have been said, Punk was helpful or contributive to a lot of the women's locker room. <laughs> Apparently, he'd probably need to spend a lot more time with some of them. But um, I'm, you know, I'm glad for Jade that uh, he told her to stand up for herself. I wish she wouldn't sound so fucking flummoxed and and green on podcasts, but. At the same time, it's another example of, yes, there was plenty of people that CM Punk was helping, apparently, that he was contributing to, that he was trying to coach or mentor or just give advice to, that had no problem with him whatsoever. And and that side uh, of the locker room doesn't get as much publicity as the other side, for some unknown reason. What do you think about what she's saying here? Because... This isn't a new thing. The idea that someone with a big personality gets brought into, let's say, WWE. Let's not even use AEW here as the example. And they kind of have to shrink down a little bit, not upset people. They have to walk on eggshells. CM Punk has never really done that. I'm assuming that's kind of what the advice is. Stand up for yourself. Don't let yourself be put into that box. Why do you think that happens? And when did that start, that insecurity that's almost forced onto wrestlers once you go to a major company? Well, once you started signing these ridiculous contracts where you can't do anything else and there's no place else to go where you can make anywhere near that amount of money, and most of the guys have been brought up over the last 10 or 15 years to just consider that they're, and they say it on television, they're thankful and lucky to be there. And that's a complete reversal of the way the business was when there were plenty of places to work and all the guys, you know, took care of themselves and were true independent contractors and went from place to place when they wanted to. You can't do that anymore. So yeah, everybody's like, oh shit. Uh, You know, I'm worried about this or that or the other thing because what's your fucking alternatives in a lot of cases. Now, having said that, you got to be careful who you give that advice to because maybe I don't know what other lives Miss Cargill has lived. I never heard of her from Apple Butter until... She showed up on AEW television, and she might not fit in this category, but some people of these modern times, getting in the business, if you tell stand up for yourself, don't let people walk all over you, well, then some fucking jack-off that looks in the mirror and sees a million dollars when everybody else is seeing something dirty, green, and wrinkled is going to try to stand up for himself and say the way it's going to be and this and that, and they're going to say, get the fuck out of here. So you got to also pick your spots in that and know when they really want you to be there and they'll put up with any fucking tomfoolery from you. 
Well, let's get our final bit of audio here from Jade Cargill on the Bootleg Kev podcast talking about CM Punk. This is her talking about the All Out Press Scrum. Crazy was backstage the night that Punk did that press conference with Tony Khan sitting next to him mm-hmm. and shit hit the fan. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I have no idea. So I wasn't there. Okay. I had already left the stadium. I, I wasn't even left, there. Um, right after my match, I left. I <laughs> right. was like, all right, like I'm out, guys. And so I heard about it just like the rest of the world at the same time. Yeah. It was pretty shocking. Um, but and again, I saw that look yeah. that Tony Khan gave him, like, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know. From my opinion, Punk's a great guy. He's been nothing but nice to the women's locker room. Right. He talks to me, um, tells me his experience again at Comic-Con. You know, we got really close because he was my my tag me right. in the interviews. And I learned so much from him and so much knowledge in the industry. And again, he's, you know, been in two different companies. And of course. he's he can do whatever the hell he wants to do. So right. um, he doesn't need it. Right. He does it because he loves it. Yeah. And that, to me, speaks speaks to me because I don't need it. I do it because I love it. And I appreciate people like that. Well, there it is, Jim. And let me just say, I'm starting to like her. I think she seems all right. She seems like she has a good head on her shoulders. What is it that she's done that she does this because she likes it, not because she needs to? She transitioned to becoming a professional wrestler. No, but what I'm saying, we need to find out what line of work she was in previously. And that appears to be very profitable. We should possibly pursue that endeavor. I believe she was an athlete. Well, I'm some sort of basketball. I'm not exactly sure what All you right, did. Well, we'll, we'll check on that later on at the home office. Final thoughts on what she's saying about CM Punk and how this fits into the overall narrative about him. Well, what we just said, it doesn't fit the overall narrative, but only one side has been providing the overall narrative, except for us over here in the corner. Uh, so it's been amplified a lot more by people who buy into that type of thing and buy into the type of people who spread that type of thing. So we just deal in, in facts here. Facts. Just the facts, ma'am. And there, Miss Cargill just gave us some facts. Speaking of which, Jim, we have a lot to go over. We have a Nick Khan interview. We have Raw, but we have breaking news. Uh-oh. The Wall Street Journal. WWE's Vince McMahon settles with ex-wrestling referee who accused him of rape. Boom! Multi-million dollar settlement averts a public legal fight as executive chairman pursues possible WWE sale. Let's stop right there with the headline. He settled with Rita Chatterton. That's pretty big. Well, again, a minor annoyance of how much was it? Do we know? Did they say? Undisclosed amount? We don't know. Uh, 10 million, 20 million. Let's throw Rita $25 million. We got fish to fry over here. We can't be mucking around on the side of the pond. We, you know, that's what this is. Obviously they don't want to, and that's the perfect time. And that's, I'm sure why her attorney smelled this and is like, okay, this is the perfect time to, uh, settle this matter to everyone's satisfaction. Now there, there's no uh, there's no bad publicity. It's going to come out of a protracted argument back and forth. Go ahead. Here's your article by Joe Palazzolo and Ted Mann. Vince McMahon, the executive chairman of World Wrestling Entertainment, Inc., has agreed to a multi-million dollar legal settlement with former wrestling referee who accused him with, excuse me, with a former wrestling referee who accused him of raping her in 1986, according to people familiar with the agreement. Mr. McMahon's settlement with Rita Chatterton, completed last month, averts a public legal fight 
over her allegations as Mr. McMahon pursues possible sale of the company. They settled this last month. This was completed before his triumphant return to the fourth floor. Before the end of the year, they tied up all the loose ends they could, it sounds like. Miss Chatterton, the first female referee in what was then known as the World Wrestling Federation, demanded $11.75 million in damages for the alleged rape in a November letter to Mr. McMahon's attorney viewed by the Wall Street Journal. Miss Chatterton agreed to a lesser amount in the millions of dollars. One of the people familiar with the matter said, but the journal couldn't determine the exact figure. Here's a quote from Jerry McDivitt, Mr. McMahon's lawyer. Mr. McMahon denies and always has denied raping Miss Chatterton, and he settled the case solely to avoid the cost of litigation. Let's stop there. Remember Michael Jackson? I gave that boy $25 because I just didn't <laughs> want to deal with it. I didn't care everyone was going to accuse me. What's this? Yeah, well... <laughs> How much does Jerry McDivitt bill per hour that it costs more than like five or six million, million dollars to defend this? Uh, obviously, tying up the loose ends and letting the, uh, the, the muck fall to the bottom of the pond uh, so that the water wouldn't be muddy. That's, and, and we're just now hearing about it, but last month was before he staged his coup or insurrection or whatever the fuck it was. Actually, he owns the thing, so it's not like that. He was just taking it back through any means necessary. Last month is when the board of directors said, we don't want you back. Yeah. So, but what, so now what is his running tally up to? Was he at about $21 million before this in payoffs for various indiscretions and or fornications? So this would be... It's uh, somewhere under $11.7 million. So let's, let's round him off at $30 million. Ms. Chatterton referred the journal to her lawyer, John Clune, who declined the comment. WWE did not respond to requests for comment. The deal follows... And Vince referred you to what the five fingers said to the face. Hey, Brian Solomon tweeted out that he's been, for a business thing, yes. reg- regularly going past Stanford, and he's seen Vince's office, the lights are off, it's finally, the lights are back on again. Yeah, he said in the evening times, he goes by there, and has been since August, and it's been dark, but now, the lights are back on. The deal follows a $7.5 million settlement Mr. McMahon reached in 2018 with a former wrestler who alleged that he coerced her into giving him oral sex, as well as a 2022 agreement in which he agreed to pay $3 million to a former WWE employee with whom he allegedly had an affair, the journal previously reported, citing people familiar with those agreements. Mr. McMahon has declined to publicly address the settlements. WWE has declined to discuss the allegations against Mr. McMahon, The company previously said it was cooperating with a board inquiry into the payments and taking the claim seriously. Where is that that board inquiry right now? What's the uh, status of the... Oh, I forgot. All those people have... have, the, The board has walked the plank. Mr. McMahon contended in a 1993 lawsuit that Ms. Chatterton was induced to make a false rape charge against him by a former wrestler with an axe to grind. Mr. McMahon withdrew the lawsuit the following year, he said, to focus on defending against criminal steroid-related charges. He was acquitted of those charges in 1994. I'm trying to see if there's anything else new here. 
It just goes into everything else about him coming back to the company. Ms. Chatterton alleged in a televised interview in 1992 that Mr. McMahon had told her she needed to satisfy him to obtain a $500,000 contract with his company and raped her in the back of a limousine in New York. So here we are. They demanded millions and they got millions. What do you think of this, Jim? Millions! Millions, I say! Uh, <sighs> Is he still blaming David Schultz? <laughs> I, I, and you know, again, this actually does not make an admission of guilt because, again, with the amount of money that's on the line, that would be probably his decision anyway. I'd give her fucking $10 million to go away. This is fucking this up. Because we're talking billions of dollars. And and there, as as your analysis lately has gone into, they may be fighting a game of beat the clock on getting this thing sold before the new rights fees are, are determined or at least uh, negotiations start because it may be... Uh, sad day for him when they do so i think he's gonna is there anything else besides lawsuits over the vince's return to the board and the stockholders and whatever is there any other outstanding legal issue he's got uh i bet you he'll close that up quickly also and again these are just the things we know about these are just the things being leaked to the wall street journal we have no idea what else is going on well, let's talk to somebody over at the goddamn New York Post. What are they? What are they? Are they on this beat also? The Wall Street Journal's getting all the goddamn glory here. They certainly are. Well, that's the uh, Vince McMahon news, the breaking news. We'll stay on top of this and see if anything else happens, if he settles with anyone else, or if anyone else says, look at how much money he's settling for. Maybe I should tell people what he did. You watched Monday Night Raw this week. I saw parts of it, but let's talk about Raw. Uh, well... I was coerced slightly into watching Monday Night Raw, but no, I wanted to give him a chance again with all this stuff going on. Can we have a rip-roaring program? And it's been a couple days, so I will refer to my notes because nothing was very memorable. But um, the first segment was the Usos and Solo coming out to do an in-ring promo. And I'm just going to talk about some observations I had on some of this stuff today. Did you notice that, and I, it's not I don't like these guys, and they work hard, and the bloodline as a, as a group is the best thing they've got on the, the television, but is the vibe all the way different without Roman and Heyman? When it's not the whole group, and it's just Usos and Solo, and and, and Sammy, if, if with Sammy not there, is is... It, it's almost like you've gone to see a concert with the Pips, but Gladys ain't there. You know what I'm saying? It's the difference between seeing Return of the Jedi and seeing the Ewok movies without any of the other Star Wars characters. Well, I prefer just Gladys and the Pips, but nevertheless. The Pips um, with no Gladys. Remember, didn't well, Richard Pryor do that? Well, yes. <laughs> we, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's the That was the simile that I... Or analogy that I uh, prefer is the the Pips and no Gladys. But you can do your Ewoks and your Mudwomps and whatever the fuck. But now every generation of Bloodline will be on Raw 30. And by the way, guess who's coming back to Raw 30? The Undertaker. 
And 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 I'm John shocked. Cena is is suspected to be more involved coming up. I'm just absolutely stunned. Who would have thought that Vince McMahon would return and immediately start bringing back stars? So anyway, Usos and Solo are out there on Raw, and they're doing an interview, and they're going to defend the tag team title against Judgment Day. And I'm thinking, who's the heels? And then here comes Judgment Day. And I think it's important that when they come out. Judgment Day makes their entrance. Rhea Ripley talks first. That I think that means that they know that she's a star. And they put Finn in the middle. <laughs> because Ripley talks first. She's a star. Uh, then they get in the ring. The crowd is, is kind of silent because what the fuck? It's heels. And then Balor talks for a minute and nobody really cares because it's just that voice. I don't know. And then Priest takes over and sounds a little uh, better and saves it. But they're apparently now they're fighting for the raw belts only. So they're going to split the tag team title up again, probably, or they wouldn't have made that point abundantly clear. But Priest is natural. Dominic gets a ton of heat. Rhea Ripley's a superstar. And Balor still doesn't fit in this fucking equation. But the Usos did a big promo. I wasn't seeing anybody popping. The, then Dominic chimes in and people got interested because he's just a heat-getting machine because he's a, he's a little putz they can get on. He's a, an, a reverse Sami Zayn. And then Solo gets face-to-face -face with Dominic and old mommy got in between them uh, to, you know, back Solo up or just to stop Solo so Dominic could sucker him and they get in a big fight. And Solo decides he's been taunted by Rhea Ripley. He starts to give her the fucking Samoan spike. And suddenly, out of nowhere, who has not been involved in this goddamn whole conversation up until now, but is in the next match, Muhammad Ali dives out of off the top rope Muhammad Ali. Out of, or Mustafa Ali. <laughs> but, I didn't see? even know what you were talking about. <laughs> um, Mustafa Ali dives off the top rope out of nowhere onto Solo. And they say Solo versus Ali is next and go to the break. So, my God, it, they, uh, this 10 fucking minute promo breaks into a goddamn fight. And the guy that's in the match jumps in, and then they say, okay, at break. What the f... And when they come back from the break, it was just Solo against Ali having a match, and everybody else was magically gone. Like, there's not even the... The police weren't even still there removing the crime tape and taking off the, taking the uh, witness statements from this big riot they just had. So... I said, fuck this. I fast forwarded to fucking five minutes and I'm thinking, why has Solo not killed this guy? And they're uh, still attempting to use this Mustafa Ali fucking fellow. But finally they post him and the Usos come back and here comes Kevin Owens. As soon as the Usos show, I know Owens and the Usos are involved, but can they get anybody else in this goddamn fiasco it's just flowing from people fighting to different people fighting so owens comes out and beats up the usos pretty much by himself and ali almost beats solo but then solo beat him but then owens stunnered solo and beat him up all over the announce desk and then beat up both the usos 
And then Solo and both Usos took off while Adam Pearce and all the agents held Kevin Owens back. So is this the biggest expose of wrestling of all time that Kevin fucking Steen just beat up and ran off three Samoans? And what was even happening with all this? In 30 minutes, we started out with a fucking promo. We... Uh, then a, a different promo, then a goddamn uh, fucking fight with six people that suddenly settled down, we don't know how, then a match, and then more people come back and fight a different fucking guy. And again, I remind you, Owens runs off three full-grown Samoans. Help me. Oh, I can't help you, just like I can't help this show. I'll go back to something you said earlier. Rhea and Dominic, and I told you, I think Dominic may be the most improved wrestler just based on everything other than the in-ring stuff. He's great with her. They're really, really good together. Finn Balor, I agree with you. Damian Priest is great. And my other thought was what you had. Who's the babyface here? Uh, anyway, the next big thing on the program, they did another package on Cody, the surgery, the rehab, the physical therapy. This is so good. It's it's a a network sports show. It's Wide World of Sports on Sunday afternoon for those of that generation. It's something that of of the NBA or the NFL or something would put together on a fucking guy that was injured on the field or on the court or whatever and is coming back and is a human interest thing. And now with Brandy we knew we'd see her sooner or later, but it fits because it's his wife talking about his surgery and his, his recovery. She wasn't out of place. And finally, you know, the dramatic music and he's training in the gym and they show the difference between the, the bruise and the discoloration and now the scar from the surgery, but blah, 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 and big news and they need this. He's back at the Royal Rumble. And that's what we said would happen when he got hurt. Yeah. And that obviously was the, cause it wasn't that hard to figure out. It's not like some of the, the better prognostications you've been doing lately. That's simple wrestling. If, if an injury of that type, approximately that length, let's hope he's back at the Royal rumble, but nobody can say if you didn't like wrestling or you want to say wrestling was fake, like everybody in the world, you can't say this is bullshit that they've able, they've been able to turn this into, even though everybody knows it's a worked world, they've been able to turn this into the equivalent of if he was really injured in a shoot, cause he was injured for a shoot and they're telling a true story. The reason he came back for the title, for the dream, blah, blah, blah. And and nobody can say that any of it's bullshit because they've got everything, including the surgery, on video. So this is fantastic. And this will be another thing that should make a big difference for him. And the one thing we don't have to worry about, Vince is the one that started this. So if Vince is back, he's not going to fuck it up. So they got right. that going for him. Because Vince doesn't fuck up any of the things that he puts his hands all over when it comes to the creative end of wrestling. Well, no, but he this was, he was starting this. He obviously was on board with it to begin with because it was happening before he left. I'm not saying he wouldn't screw up something else that he wasn't in favor of. My fear is I think the stuff with Cody has been strong 
just talking about the last few video packages, people are ready to see him. If they build up a match at WrestleMania and he doesn't get the belt, it's Luger not getting the belt at this point. And that's what I'm afraid of. If they build up a match for him to go for the title at WrestleMania, if he wins the Rumble, he has to win the belt, I think. I'm having a hard time finding a way to argue with you. All right. Then in that case, maybe Roman Reigns does beat The Rock on night one if that takes place. And then night two is Cody's. Hey, they brought up earlier, you talked about how next week for the 30th anniversary of Raw, even though the anniversary is actually a couple weeks ago, I guess, by the time that show airs, they can have all the other members of the Samoan dynasty there. Who knows who will be there and who won't be? I'm sure Jacob Fatu won't be there, <laughs> but they could have all these people there. Yeah, I don't, I don't think everybody's going to be there. I, don't, I think the airlines would have to have to add extra flights. If you have The Rock for Mania against Roman Reigns, is this where you start building it up? Is The Rock there? Well, I don't think The Rock is here. I think if they know The Rock is going to be there, they do something here that instigates his return. And is that a heat angle? Do they want to go with, you know, uh, uh, do they want to go with some kind of heat between Roman and Rock, or do they want to just go with the straight-up showdown to prove who is the head of the table, who's the tribal chief? I would think they would start something, but I don't think you have... When they've already said Undertaker's back, and whatever else, I think Flair said he's going to be there, and a bunch of other people... The Rock at that point might be too much. Do something to, what's the word I'm searching for? Have somebody do or say something that causes The Rock to have to respond in some type. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, what else was on this show? back to me, right? Back to you on this show, this Raw. Street Profits versus Shelton Benjamin and Cedric Alexander. And I wrote, I said, wait a minute, Shelton and Cedric are still there and still ambulatory and they're able to be a tag team and we got to see fucking Gable and Otis and whoever else every week? Where have they been all of our lives for the last few months? And the problem is Shelton and Cedric, I guess, are still the heels, even though didn't they become baby faces when MVP and Lashley turned on them, but then something else had... You can see that it's been such a mess, we don't even remember what the, whose side who's on, right? They did the thing back and forth. When they broke up the Hurt Business, they fucked the whole deal up. Uh, but Shelton looks great, as always. Um, they were going 100 miles an hour in this match, uh, and because they only had about three minutes before the break, and MVP walked out to ringside, and everybody just kind of stood and looked, and they went to the break. And coming back from the break, they were all four up and having a match, and within 30 seconds, so again, just these throwaway matches, Ford hot-tagged the other guy. What's his name? God damn it. Angelo uh, Dawkins. There you go, Daryl Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder. Well, he made a fucking comeback, and Ford hit a splash, and Cedric saved, and Ford got shit-canned, and Cedric, or Ford shit-canned Cedric, rather. I'm going by my notes. And tag Dawkins, and this is where... So Ford throws Cedric out of the ring and then turns around and tags his partner Dawkins. And Dawkins steps in the ring 
and Ford steps out, and then Dawkins turns around and tags Ford right back in. I mean, what the fuck are they doing? And if Ford goes to the top and Dawkins gets the doomsday device, you know, shoulder ride thing. So, again, if you figured the finish right, you never have a, a tag followed by another tag with no contact in the middle. The guys are just going beep, beep, beep. But anyway, Cedric foils that. They all did dives. Dawkins went to splash Cedric in the corner. But MVP went to pull Cedric out. The old deal where MVP jumps up on the apron and pulls him out of the corner. So the guy splashing hits the buckle. But two things happened. One, he MVP was a tad late. And two, when he laid his hands on Cedric and Cedric had to know it was coming, <laughs> he didn't make any motion whatsoever to go out on his own. <laughs> and so... He, MVP grabbed Cedric's arm and the guy just splashed him in the corner. And MVP pulled him out afterwards. And the announcers are like, well, I, I think he was trying to get him out of the way. And then Cedric and Sheldon hit Dawkins with a double team while MVP drew the referee. But as soon as they covered and the referee turned back around, Dawkins reversed it. He just rolled him up. So the guy took a double-team move and was covered, and then as soon as the referee turns around, Dawkins just rolls the, the guy on top of him up. I can't remember which. I think it was Cedric. One, two, three. What? I don't even understand what the fuck any of that was. Help me. Good action. Can't explain anything else, though. It, it, mm. All righty, then. I, I am for, I mean, if... If they're reuniting the Hurt Business, I mean, it's a show-long thing here. I'm for that, because I like MVP, and I think MVP's great, and I think without MVP, Shelton and Cedric have been lost. Lashley's been lost. Almost is lost, but I don't think MVP has helped or hurt that matter. Yeah, I don't know if uh, MVP is going to be the the Christopher Columbus or the fucking... What's that famous explorer I can't call his name right now? I don't know which the one. The famous explorer that found shit. Magellan? There he is. Good enough. Go ahead. Go ahead what? Go ahead and finish your thought. That was my thought. Magellan. Oh, Magellan. All right. Well, I'm <laughs> gelling like Magellan. Then we had some bad comedy in the back with the Judgment Day. And guess who? Gable and Otis. And I wrote down, it hurts the Judgment Day to have to interact with this, these people. So then we're an hour into the program by now. And Becky Lynch comes to the ring. And she comes through the people like Moxley and people like old Becky. And she calls out Bailey. And here comes Bailey out with her stooges, uh, Kai and Sky. And they started arguing with each other, and Bailey argued that her name wasn't Karen, and it was like they were trying to do a routine where Becky was calling her a Karen, which is the modern, you know, a a moniker for some bitch that complains a lot. But she was, my name is not Karen, like she was really caught... They went back and forth, and then Becky said Bailey peaked in 2015. And Bailey says, Becky, you you took my job, and it all should be mine. Some of this sounded uncomfortably legitimate, but at the same time, not 
uncomfortably legitimate like a promo that draws money should it sounded more like it was just uncomfortable for the people involved in it um bailey looked like her feelings were really hurt at one point she had that fucking quiver lip but i so becky challenged uh bailey for a cage match next week and bailey accepted and becky walked off and this was eight minutes it seemed like 20 this was brutal. This was really, really awkward and bad at times. And eventually it picked up and it kind of went somewhere. But like you said, they were doing a routine, but the fans weren't reacting. So then she's just yelling the Karen thing over and over and no one's reacting. And uh, I'm sure the cage match next week will be a, a Donnie Brook of epic proportions. Hey, considering the character development we saw from Becky Lynch over the last year or whatever, what do you think of her going back to being the man? Well, I mean, it's always been, uh, that's part of her uh, portfolio. You know, she's always had that. So you can say it at any time. Are they going to heavily market it again? Have they settled something else with Rick or, you know, well, I mean, she went from Bex was good too. Yeah. She went from wearing all those lady Gaga outfits to going back to just being, you know, a female Steve Austin coming through the crowd. It kind of feels like a step backwards in a sense to me. Well, I'd. I don't know. Maybe it, it just desperate times call for desperate measures. That's what she was. She was just coming out to be a badass in this because she's challenging for a cage match. I don't fucking know. I'm not putting that much thought into this because they aren't either. Apparently, the next match was Ezekiel versus. Wait a minute, that was his brother, Elrod versus. Wait a minute, that was his other brother, Elroy. Elroy, no, that was the Jetson kid. Um, Elias wrestled almost, and I almost watched it, but I didn't. And they set this up with a skit that telegraphed everything, because he ran into MVP, they had a little bit of an issue. He said, I'll get you a match later today. He thought it was going to be with MVP. It was obvious that MVP is going to go with the Adam Pearson say, make it almost, and that's exactly what happened. Pretty obvious. He said, I said you were going to wrestle the, the winner of the Royal Rumble. No, I didn't say it was going to be me or something like that. Uh, and the next match hurt my feelings so bad I skipped it too because the aforementioned Gable and Otis wrestled Priest and Dominic. And I just, I wrote, oh God, no, I cannot tolerate. And fucking Gable was part of Gable and Jordan that had those fantastic matches with FTR and looked like a fucking. He had long hair, looked like a rock star, great athletic looking kid, a little vertically challenged between the shush and all the other foolery. I don't want to see him. I don't care. And Otis is presented as a big, fat, dumpy fuck. And I don't want to see him and I don't care. So I didn't watch this because I didn't care. And speaking of things that I didn't watch because I didn't care, this is a three hour program, ladies and gentlemen. Sky with Kai wrestled <laughs> wrestled Yim with Larray. And then explain this one to me. Bianca Bell Bianca Bell. Bianca Belair in the ring for promo. How she's missed the fans over the past few weeks. But, you know, she'll face Alexa Bliss anytime. It She does kind of a 
fake, a fake sincerity. Do you know what, am I making any sense? She sounds like she's just talking to everybody, you know, real and honestly, and it sounds fake as fuck. Yeah, like The Rock. Oh, come on. If The Rock is a better actor than Bianca Belair. The point is, it just, it's scripted shit that doesn't have a lot of passion in it. She doesn't sound genuine with what she's saying to me. But then speaking of which, here comes Alexa Bliss out. And I'm thinking, God damn, can somebody provide a magnifying glass so I can actually see this girl? And now they're going to fucking fight at the Royal Rumble. Bianca challenges Alexis because they've been going back and forth. And Alexis accepted with absolutely no emotion. Then they got into a sloppy fight that went into the back of the arena. I know Bianca Belair is very good in the ring. I don't like her promos. She's very athletic and she has good matches. But this stuff doesn't help her at all. Where Bianca goes to hit her finish on Bliss and see in the in the arena at the back and sees Captain Howdy and the smoke and the lights and whatever in the breezeway of the arena and puts Bliss down because she's so stunned at this sight that we see on TV every fucking week. And Bliss gave her a DDT on the fucking floor. So uh, am I taking by this that we have to suffer through Alexa Bliss being possessed like Linda Blair in The Exorcist again? Who said this Captain Howdy stuff is going so well on SmackDown? Let's do a crossover event and bring it to Raw. This is the worst shit in wrestling. Let's bring it to the women's division. Well, they, now they've, they've actually, they've kicked it up a notch, though, because it's, it's rotten when Wyatt's involved. But when Alexa Bliss is involved, it, it takes on a whole new level of stinkiness. Because now they're just doing a ripoff of a bad gimmick. But, so that was that. And I wrote, I'm about to give up on this show. And they didn't give me any reason afterwards to change that opinion. Bronson Reed versus Tazawa. I think Bronson Reed is a heck of a talent, and I'm glad he's back. And I've liked him when he was in NXT last year, two years ago, or whatever. And I think he's got a brilliant future. And Tazawa is smaller than the girl referee that they gave to this match. And while I love Bronson Reed, I'm not watching this, because what the fuck? And he won, and there you go. And (sighs) the main event on this program, and by the way, it wasn't a help to anybody who had slogged through two and a half hours of this thing when they saw that there were 30 minutes left on the air when the main event goes in the ring, because you've now, you, you know, if there was anything better after this match, they would have advertised it on this program. So, you know, this is the last match six way elimination match. At least they're doing eliminations now instead of first person to win a pinfall or whatever. But the only reason they did eliminations here was because they had to fill 30 fucking minutes. Six-way for a shot at the United States heavyweight title currently held by our boy Theory. Seth Rollins, Finn Balor, The Miz, Dolph Ziggler, Bobby Lashley, and Baron Von Corbin. Now, again, 
I love Dolph Ziggler. He possibly may be the best pure worker in this match, but the last time he won a match, Obama was president. And Miz and Balor and Corbin, who gives a shit? Seth and Lashley, the only main event talent in the match, and 30 minutes of guys doing moves to each other for no reason while several others disappear for long stretches because elsewise they can't have a fucking match. And they did a jump start at the bell and and got into a six-way and went to the break. They did 10 minutes of entrances and the match started and they went to a fucking commercial. And it would sound like I'm making this up, except I'm not. Is it any wonder that nobody wants to see this shit compared to the people that used to want to see this shit? So uh, there were some eliminations and then almost comes to ringside and uh, distracts Lashley and he gets clotheslined by Corbin. Are we going to see Lashley and almost again? And Balor hit the double stomp on Lashley, but then Seth followed it up with a curb stomp on Balor and eliminated him. And then almost grabbed Seth and threw him over the announce desk, so Lashley had time to beat Corbin. That meant Seth and Lashley were left. And then Theory came out. (laughs) Remember when interference in a match was just from one party representing one disgruntled entity? Theory knocks Lashley out with the title belt in front of the referee who does nothing because it's no disqualification, lazy booking, shirt available at jimcornette.com. And then almost grabs Theory, because even almost is a heel, and Theory's a heel, but Theory got in the way of what almost wanted to do, so now almost grabs Theory and is going to choke slam him over the fucking desk, but Seth comes from behind and curb stomps almost onto the desk to save Theory from... And then Seth beat up Theory and super kicked MVP and got back in the ring and Lashley speared Seth one, two, three. So a babyface beat a babyface after that babyface had beaten up all of the heels that had interfered, try to fuck with the babyface that beat the babyface that fucked with the heels that what the fuck is happening? Well, first of all, the tie into the things we talked about from earlier in the show with MVP and almost there at ringside, it almost felt like they were getting back to hurt business, but with almost attached to it. And they were helping that would Lashley. Hurt. And they were that helping Lashley, hurt. which would not make him a babyface here. Although he's going to be wrestling theory, so he has to be a babyface. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I will say, at least theory's finally showing some confidence. Well, he was always confident, but he's allowed to be something other than a putz right now. Yes, I think he's, he's doing got a, a good nice job beard. With it. He's doing nice a good job. Beard. With it. Well, okay. That's that's that means I, that's added eighteen months to his chronological age. That beard. That's he's growing up. That was the whole show. It certainly was. That was raw, and it always is. It was it was raw and blistered, and there was some discoloration, and I think potentially infection was starting to set in. Well, Jim, coming out of that, we have some more breaking news, or I don't know if you would call it breaking news, maybe hopeful news, because this could be a boon to the wrestling comedy industry. (laughs) 
The headline from the Sportster, Hulk Hogan spotted with Tom Cruise furthering Scientology recruitment <laughs> rumors. And this follows, and I didn't see this too closely. We'll look into it right now here on the air. Hulk Hogan apparently tweeting out signs that maybe he's involved with Scientology. <laughs> this, there's so many things to talk about here. What do you think of this? Well, first of all, you know, because I, I know he's, he's a big Christian fellow, is Hulk Hogan. And I don't, is that, well, I guess I'm thinking of uh, the, the, the Mormons, you know, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, dum, 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 on South Park. What do the Scientology folks believe? Are they the ones that we came from outer space along with Michael Rennie and, and uh, you know, the, the Klaatu Barada Nikto, the whole nine yards? What has, has, has Hogan completely renounced Jesus and he's going with the Scientologists who think that we're, we're spawns of foreign alien beings? What the fuck's going on here? I believe they believe in a Lord Xenu, a space god who's up there who froze people and then volcanoes erupted and everyone became unfrozen and their spirits are amongst all of us. Perhaps he gave up everything and believes that or maybe, you know, he recognizes a free lunch. We really don't know. Well, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't want, you know, to think that Hulk would completely renounce J.C., and go to a completely different... Here's another related thought. Why is it always the God in the sky and devil's down? And is, Shouldn't some religion come along and flip the script, as they say, to kick things up a notch, turn things on its head? Let's put God in the middle of the earth and Satan's out in the sky. Because think about this. If God was in the middle of the earth, that means he created it all around him. All the birds and the fishies and the little blue things in the sea and all that stuff. He created this magical world all around him, and he's in the center of it, the heart of it, where he can keep the blood and the life fluid pumping to all corners of it. And meanwhile, Satan, the devil, Mephistopheles, Mr. Scratch, he's out there in space, out in Never Never Land, away from us where scary things live. Why haven't they come up with that backstory? You're giving him more territory than God. Well, that's, there's, there's not a lot out there, though. It's like we gave him Montana. It's big, but it's empty. So that's just a, something that ran through my mind. But yeah, back to the Scientology. So what is uh, Hogan has not only been seen with Tom Cruise, but apparently he's tweeted out allusions uh, to uh, alluding to potentially following the Scientology principles. And since I don't know what the fuck they are, this has escaped me until now. Well, again, this is from an article in the Sportster by Josh Colson. Let me scan down a little. Hogan sparked rumors that he was the Church of Scientology's latest celebrity recruit when he started dating known Scientologist Sky Daly. Known Scientologist? That's like... That's, yeah. <laughs> known arsonist. <laughs> that is a really harsh way to say that she that's believes just, in this. Just, Pam, here, that's for you. The belief that he is at least courting the controversial religious group has been furthered this week after Hogan was spotted taking in an NFL game with Tom Cruise. Cruise has been the world's most famous Scientologist for a very long time. He's also five foot two. 
Reported by T. Not that I added that. What I was about to say is that the official measurement from uh, the <laughs> the head head office in Zurich, Switzerland. Reported by TJR Wrestling, the site highlighted a tweet from Aaron Smith Eleven, revealing Cruz and Hogan had been spotted at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers versus Dallas Cowboys game. The additional tidbit in the Hogan Scientology story also includes a previous tweet revealing the WWE Hall of Famer has been posing for photo opportunities with known Scientologists <laughs> with Scientology-owned businesses as the backdrop. <laughs> I mean, it's a wacky religion, but the way they're making it sound like it's the fucking Nazis or something. Uh, and also, I think I'm, I'm with you. I think uh, he's cashing in on an opportunity. Take a picture with you in front of your fucking thing. Sure. How much uh, would you like to give me for that? Listen, it's so easy. Here's how it goes. Come on in. Just talk to them. It's so cool. You're dating me. You get to fuck me. You get to come in here, talk to my friends. Okay. I get to fuck you. I remember that. You go in there, you talk to them. They're like, hey, let us get you lunch. All right. And we'll just keep talking to you. All right. Hey, you know what? You're a big star. One, you want to go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game with Tom Cruise? Sure, brother. All right, we'll set that up. He just says yes to anything. They keep handing him shit because he's Hulk Hogan. But you have to do an audit in Scientology. Wait a minute. Hold on now. Well, at various points in time, Hogan's books have been none too fucking good. But then he won that big lawsuit. So he may be, he may be all right. I don't mean a financial audit. audit. I mean... What other kind is there? An audit of the soul, I guess. You hold these cans and they monitor what you tell them and they ask you to tell them everything wait what i saw this there's a documentary there's a book and a documentary called going clear that showed all this and also the book came out first the book you can read about all of it but okay so you need canned goods is what you're saying well they give you these two things you hold on to them and it's basically a lie detector test about yourself and you have to keep doing it so imagine if Hulk Hogan's there. Why well, he blew up the whole goddamn deal, Matthew? Why he would the biggest fucking liar in wrestling history has to go tell the truth over and over I, and over. I thought I, I thought that was tornado sirens I heard the other night. That was Hogan strapped up to the machine at the Scientologist. So they they hold on to the thing and they tell them the, they tell the lies and they did they get electrocuted or does it shock therapy does it shock them straight or shock them into scientology no they don't believe in therapy i believe because remember tom oh. cruise went crazy on matt lauer on the today show years ago jumping well no, no he jumped up and down on a different show on that show he just got mad because he knows more than the therapists and he knows more than everyone and matt was glib i remember that was the phrase so what's Hogan going to do here, you think? It's interesting. If he joins Scientology, that's a lot of PR muscle behind them. They put money behind their stars. They expect... Their stars. They expect subservient <laughs> behavior uh, to a certain degree, unless you're Tom Cruise. But if he ever tried to leave, they would destroy his life. But yeah, no, I mean, Hogan, if you think about who the big Scientologists are nowadays, Tom Cruise... Who's bigger right now, Hulk Hogan or John Travolta? Oh, good God. Just are there dedicated websites and fan sites and a massive social media presence for 
Saturday Night Fever like there are for wrestling, I would have to think that even though Travolta may be a more widely known worldwide mainstream celebrity just because of his age and tenure uh, and and the movies and etc., right now you would get more people talking if you had Hulk Hogan involved than John Travolta. To me. Interesting. Okay. So you think Hulk Hogan right now is a bigger star than John Travolta? No, I say he's got more dedicated people that give a shit. I'm saying more people know who John Travolta is. Hulk Hogan probably draw you a bigger crowd. If Hulk Hogan becomes a Scientologist, what do you think the move is for Ron Howard? Not Hollywood's Ron <laughs> Howard. Ron Howard. <laughs> Ron Howard of the Hulk Hogan surf shop or whatever, the beach shop, the beach store. Not Hulk Hogan's. Beach Hut. Not, I forget what not, it is. Not Opie Taylor, but Dopey Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to have to come up with a whole new backstory for a lot of shit if they switch over to the Scientology gimmick. Oh, man. He's going to have to rewrite all his material. All kidding aside, if it's about recruitment, it is a brilliant move. Forget about fans. If you're just trying to get to wrestlers, getting Hulk Hogan to be a part of Scientology, and I think from what I see here on, once again, Google, however reliable this is, about 25,000 worldwide believers, getting him's a big move, not just for the general public, but I think if you want to make inroads into wrestling, especially amongst older wrestlers. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think the younger generation, uh, one thing they have figured out maybe is that Hogan's full of shit, but uh, um, some of the guys of his generation that haven't done as well as he has uh, on several things and maybe fucking wander around looking for something might fall for something like that. Mr. Hogan, how much did Andre the Giant weigh when you body slammed him? 700 pounds, brother. Mr. Hogan, how much did Andre the Giant weigh? Went 600 pounds. How much did Andre the Giant weigh? <laughs> the machine's going to explode. <laughs> Incoming. Oh, well, Jim, let's move on from Hulk Hogan and Scientology to people being hit in the head. <laughs> There's <laughs> something that's not very scientific. You, <laughs> you just told me before we started recording about a, a tweet that you had seen. Well, and I retweeted it, and I encourage everybody, if they see it, to do the same thing. And I will read it to you. It's from Chris Nowinski. And a lot of people may remember Chris uh, was on Tough Enough, and he spent some time training in Ohio Valley Wrestling. And he's a very, he went to Harvard. He's a very educated. Well, I wouldn't say kid, because 20 years ago when I was dealing with him, he was a kid, but young man, uh, middle-aged man now, practically. Anyway, Chris Nowinski, uh, after wrestling because of the concussions that he suffered, has a, he's a PhD. He's done incredible studies on the CTE and concussion syndrome and blah, 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 and he's had talks with numbers of the promotions you know, on, on how to improve things for wrestling and et cetera, but sports wide, not just wrestling. And he's at, at Chris Nowinski one. If you want to, uh, check some of this stuff out, 
but he tweeted a 30-second, this is not a trailer, it, it, it's just footage from one of Dana White's, old, old Slappy White's uh, new program, Power Slap League, or whatever the fuck it is. A power slap only on TBS, soon hopefully to only be on in our distant memory. Because I can't believe they put the thing on the air to begin with after what happened, and they only delayed the debut a week. But Chris tweeted 30 seconds this shit, and his tweet is, this is so sad. Note the fencing posture with the first brain injury. And you have to see this to really understand it, but it's people being knocked out. Willingly, letting people do it. Uh, so Chris continues, he may never be the same. At Dana White and at TBS Network should be ashamed. Pure exploitation. What's next? Who can survive a stabbing? And the more you look at this, I retweeted something. It was from some other organization. Apparently, there's more people doing this around the world. For this fucking guy... Apparently, these two guys had been slapping each other for a while because they go, you get one turn and then the other person gets a turn and back and forth until somebody uh, apparently either goes down and can't get back up within 30 seconds. It's a real life Texas death match with open hands. That was from Chris Nowinski too. that other tweet. Okay. Well, I, th- I saw it from like 85 different people. I, th- I think I retweeted. No, as a matter of fact, I retweeted that because yes, the other one was from Chris also. Because I said Chris has too nice an opinion of this. I think these people deserve what they get. And I still think these stupid dumb fucks deserve what they get. But I'll I'll finish the, the thought here. Is that this is the stupidest thing that I have ever seen in my life. And it's not sport, nor should it be entertainment. I can't believe that people have put money and television time behind this just on Dana White apparently I always thought did a great job with the UFC apparently is a complete fucking nitwit that he would enjoy this or or that he's just doing it for money but in this this clip which is 41 seconds long I'll tell you the first thing that happens is this guy just stands there that's what they do they stand at a podium and they have their hands behind their back and he lets the other guy slap him and he knocks him out and he goes into the posture that Chris was talking about where he's kind of stiff, but he's cold at the same time. And yes, that's a, that's a brain injury. That's a concussion. You got knocked out, you dumb shit. But it's, it's not in the context of MMA or fighting of any kind because they're standing. It's like the goddamn stupid ass chop fest from the strong style Japanese bullshit where they're just standing there phonally. Is that a word? Phonally in a phony manner, letting each other it take turns hitting each other, which looks stupid like this. Then the next clip is of his fucking, well, and I think they're giving him CPR. Yeah. They're giving the other guy CPR while the guy that knocked him out runs around and is happy about it. Oh, his head, his eyes rolled back in his head. Now there's the women. Apparently they have a girls division. So this blonde girl with a mohawk is standing at the podium while this other dumpy girl with a pigtail measures off and is going to slap her as hard as she can. 
So when she does, she slaps this girl who just fucking drops on her ass as her eyes roll back in her head. But within one, two, three, four, oh, five seconds, she's back on her feet and bent over forward. And then suddenly she does an involuntary forward roll because she doesn't know where the fuck she's at. And then there's two guys standing there. And this other mother, they're holding a rag behind, they hold their arms behind their back and they're holding a rag so they can't flinch and block it at the same, at the last minute. And this stupid fuck gets slapped and fucking dust flies off this guy's face. Apparently they're allowed to put some kind of fucking powder on their hands for some reason. And so dust flies off the side of this guy's head and he's down flat on the ground, and he don't know where the fuck he's at. And that's just in 40 seconds. Power slap, only on TBS. The network that wouldn't air a tribute to a man who was killed in a car wreck taking his children to cheerleading practice. Those Twitters are at Dana White and at TBS Network on this slapping thing. When is that a good idea for a show, Brian? Who can survive a stabbing? You, they, they like put three or four red dots on the places you're not allowed to stab, like heart, dick, balls, and an asshole. And, and those are your it, four it, spots to pick. Those are your four spots you can't stab. Okay. And you got to go below the neck so you don't cut to fucking carotid. And then you stab the, but you get a free shot. You have to stand there while somebody stabs you. But if you can survive it. You win from the looks of the people participating in this. You win free parking at the finest downtown lot for the first month. First of all, it must be cheap programming if TBS is putting it on the air right now. Second of all, I think you're being a little silly about this because we're talking about concussions. I think something more appropriate would be if you took two competitors opposite and they just run headfirst at each other over and over until someone falls. Yeah, or just that- take a take a board. And just hit the guy and see see what you can do. Beyond the idea that Dana White is attached to this after that video just came out of him slapping his wife a month ago, considering everything we know now about concussions, which is what ties Chris Nowinski into this, this is rather ignorant to put this on the air on still one of the big cable channels out there. But also it's insulting to the human race that they can find people stupid enough to participate in this. There are always people stupid enough to participate in anything. But you don't have fucking especially if they think especially if they think they'll be on TV network television. They think they'll be on TV. They'll definitely do it. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, folks, uh, if you would like to express any displeasure, again, those twitters are at Dana White and at TBS Network. So Dana White turns out this fucking. I knew he was a Trump fuck, but I thought, well, this guy has been the greatest fight promoter of modern times, and this is what he's going to fucking go out on. Slappy White. Oh, and by the way, somebody tweeted me and said, I got the guy, I said, when I announced last week, guess who's the new authority figure in Impact Wrestling? Uh, Santino Morella, I said, what's next? Nipsey Russell's going to be the fucking commissioner of the NBA? 
And somebody tweeted me and said, you misspelled it. He's dead. And his name is Nipsey Hussle. Apparently there was some rapper named Nipsey Hussle that stole Nipsey Russell's fucking name. And people now don't remember Nipsey Russell and think I mispronounced his name. Two separate people. Two completely separate people. And not neither one of them related to Slappy White. There's got to be some liability. When somebody... When somebody drops over backwards and either already has brain damage or because they're unconscious hits their back of their head and dies or is a permanent vegetable, uh, do they sue TBS? Do they sue Power Slap? Do they sue Dana White himself? Do they who do who do who do you sue in a case like that? I can't play the music on that because you don't sue Stephen P. New, but. Stephen well, no, P. New will sue for why, you. That's why I was, I was pitching it to you. Yeah. So you could say, well, I don't know who you would sue, but Jim, I bet you know somebody that could sue for you. And then I would say, sue for you? Well, that is who. Call Stephen P. Who will sue? You'll think it's voodoo the way that he will sue you, or you can get him to sue whoever you need to sue. We're talking about Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Of course, that, that wasn't even written down. It would have been good if it was. But nevertheless, you know, and I'll tell you, here's the thing. What you've got right here with the Stephen P. New situation is you've got a legally a, a legal and moral equivalent of the power slap league. Because what Stephen P. New does is he, instead of just the guy standing there and putting his hands behind his back and willingly being slapped, no, no, no. Stephen P. New, as your legal representative in a court of law, will go up on an unsuspecting son of a bitch, and that guy will never see it coming, and he will slap him. He will slap him so hard that his kids will be born in the next area code, because that's what Stephen P. New likes to do. He likes to get you by surprise, and he will slap a lawsuit on whoever has wronged you or harmed you or poisoned you or wrongfully terminated you, or discriminated against you, or injured you in some type of immoral, illegal, or unethical fashion. And what's more than that, they, the people that did that will have a lawsuit slapped upon them, whether they stand there and wait for it or not, and they will then be slapped, not on the wrist, but right on the honker, right in the nose, by the judge who rules against them and for you as a result of the representation of the aforesaid Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. And he's still going to bring the energy company down there in Louisiana to their knees. They're already shaking. As a matter of fact, the lights are flickering down in Alexandria, Louisiana on a regular basis about once an hour because the people operating that energy company are shaking and quivering at the lawsuits that Stephen P. New has brought on them for 
endangering the lives of the residents of their state for pure avariciousness and corporate greed. That's right. Yeah. And speaking of corporate greed, Nick Khan did an interview this week, Jim, that everyone has been talking about. Have you heard any of it? I know you've had a busy week. I I have heard that he has been praising Vince's triumphant return, and uh, he's all on board with everything, even though he's also on record as not having been on board with everything about a month and a half ago or a month ago. That's what I know so far. Can you enlighten me to the to the details? Well, I have not had a chance to listen to it, so we're going to hear some of these clips. Uh, Jace Nakarado or Jay Sharknado has put together a list here. So let's go to this. This is from the Bill Simmons podcast. This first audio clip, Jim, is Nick Khan on Vince's return and his role in the middle of it. I think that's what this is. Let's go to this. So let's unwind this. Vince McMahon steps down. A year ago, all these revelations about different NDAs from years ago goes in the Wall Street Journal. Um, he steps down and it seems like he's gone. Then he goes on SmackDown and just watching him from afar, the whole thing seemed insane. It was like, is this guy stepping down or not? Why is he on a show? Is he still around? People are wondering if that's not Nick Khan, by the way, that's Bill Simmons asking the question. Yes. Yes. If it's a work. And now you have 10 months later. Um, it really is starting to feel like the real life version of HBO's succession where Vince is now, he did what seemed to be from afar, like a, a board coup d'etat. Um, Stephanie stepped down. There were rumors you're going to sell to Saudi Arabia, which I never believed. But from we're watching this afar, this seems insane. What is it like to be in the middle of this? Does it seem less insane? What are the misnomers? Like, what, like how real is all of this? So I, I, from the inside, it's not that insane to me. But it's also, you know, again, the word insider, when you're on the inside, you sort of see things that might be coming and know what might be coming. You know, my thought has always been there's only one boss at WWE and it ain't me. Um, Vince is obviously the founder, creator of the company. Um, he's also the controlling shareholder, which, as you know, that's not a work term. Right. That's a legal term of art. So I think it was always my point of view, always Stephanie's point of view. At some point, he would come back. I think the way that he played it to me was smart, Bill, in that he went away for five, six months, uh, which people, meaning the audience, seems to like uh, when somebody does that. <laughs> wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. The... Did he just almost <laughs> come out and say, how can I miss you when you won't go away? His company is a control shareholder. So it is the public's company as a publicly traded company. But with that controlling share, uh, gave him a lot of authority and he used it. And I applaud him for doing so. All right, let's stop it there. So, I applaud him for being a ruthless businessman and outmaneuvering all of us. Right? Is, is basically what he just said there? That's basically what he just said. Hey, he's the first of all, if he's the founder, does that mean the company history goes back to 1980 or 1982? Because if he's the founder, it doesn't go back to whatever they want to pretend. Well, Nick Khan doesn't know what the fuck Vince Sr. did, and he's never heard of Toots Mont, the son of a but bitch. But I'm saying that's so. <laughs> they're all doing that now. That's the new terminology around Vince. He's the founder of well, WWE. That's, that's uh, several things. Number one, that's to make him to make it sound even more important that he's back and that uh, why they agree with that he's back. And also 
because in their minds, he did found this. They don't consider previous wrestling promotions to be anything comparable to the juggernaut that is the WWE. So, I, yeah, they're, but they're just they're building him up, and, and they're probably going to add Benefactor by next week. And then, you know, after that, it'll be uh, and the f- philanthropic benefacting founder is making him sound more important because he's taking over. Well, here's some more audio on Nikon or from Nikon talking about Vince. So, I mean, the that's behavior, Bill Simmons especially again. Some of the stuff in the NDA, some people would say, many people would say he shouldn't come back. That should be it. He should leave. When he owns the company, it's basically up to him. Like you can have as much public pressure as you want, but it's his company. The reason that he wouldn't come back is if he felt like it would be hurting the value of the company, the prestige of the company. Um, people's perception of whether they even want to be a fan of the company anymore. So why did he come back? Because it does seem like it, <laughs> it hurts the company. Well, so here, here's what I'd say. You and I had a conversation. I don't remember the exact time frame, but whenever the Ray Rice stuff happened in the NFL, eight, 10 years ago, whatever that was, and there were conversations at that point, not your point of view, not my point of view, that, oh, is Roger Goodell going to resign? If you remember, he had a lot of heat on Yeah. And I think you and I both concluded to each other, well, no advertiser has fled. Ratings aren't down. The product seems to continue to build. Why would he resign? Why would he do that? So I think that's more, keep in mind, I've lived in Los Angeles. I think, how long have you been in LA now, Bill? 20 years. So I've been here since 2000. So 22, 23 years. Sometimes I think it's just a three mile radius of LA thing. The, hey, step down and, you know, you have to sort of be punished for it. It Vince didn't is in Stanford. that way. So I think for somebody like Vince, and, and by the way, you and he are two different people, but you're both founder CEOs. And I think founder oh CEOs different than regular CEOs. So consider me for this moment in time, a regular CEO. There's something about the founder CEO that sees the vision, sort of sees the future, can get there a moment in time before others can, and then everyone else catches up. So even in, again, these were, let me just stop for a second and just say, I hate agents. We all need yeah. them at times, but I hate agents. <laughs> Whatever your private frustrations may have been at prior employers while you were trying to build something great, which Grantland was great and The Ringer is great. I think it's the same thing for Vince as a founder CEO. It's his company. So to me, WWE is Vince. Vince is WWE. And, uh, you know, we're going to do the best we can uh, to keep building the company. Vince's WWE. I want to remind you, he was one of the board of directors who voted against Vince coming back before he <laughs> voted for him to come back, before he flip-flopped on Vince. Before before the the arrows hit the, the first guys on the, the turrets at the fort and they fell over and the rest of the people inside said, maybe we ought to welcome them with open arms. He said something really interesting because it, it could create a legal issue, actually. He said that he did the right thing and he left until the heat died down, (laughs) which isn't what they said to shareholders. Yeah. He said the the truth out loud kind of there, didn't he? You can't just do that. (laughs) It's a publicly traded company. Apparently they can. Well, they can. Vince gets away with everything. Teflon Vince. What do you think of Nick Khan so far? Well, he's very smooth, uh, and he was absolutely for it 
ever since he decided to be for it, since he was against it. That's a, what's he going to say? Then Vince can fire him. We've now established Vince can do anything Vince wants to do. So he's going to have to be, I mean, it's not even his fault, but boy, he's, he's awful slick and he has a great voice for saying it, doesn't he? It's not, <laughs> he could say the same thing Ole Anderson would say to you. You'd want to fight Ole and you'd fucking take Nick out for dinner. All right, well, let's get some more audio. Here's Bill Simmons asking Khan to walk him through the process of when Vince stepped down. Let's go to this. Can you walk me back to when he stepped down initially? Yeah. And the board, basically, it seemed like from afar, forced him to step down. Is that accurate? I didn't see it as a force. I, I think <laughs> I saw sort of the tonnage uh, of things that were coming at him and us. And he thought, one thing he's always said, and you know this as a longtime fan, I'm a longtime fan also, he'll do whatever's best for business. And I think at that moment, whether it's bringing the ultimate warrior back 20 plus years ago or, or whatever that might be, I think at that moment in time, he saw what's best for business was for him to step away for a while. So he did. And he really did step away. So there was no, hey, why are you doing this? Or I wouldn't do it that way. It was, in my opinion, total freedom. Uh, to Stephanie, myself, and to Triple H on the creative side. It's only been a week, uh, but he really, I believe what he said publicly about, hey, I'm here to engage in strategic alternatives and the media rights. So far, the engagement has been that and other board issues. There's and not the behind the scenes wrestling stuff. Zero. Sports entertainment, any of that. Zero. None. And by the way, I made it a point, as did others, to see him once a month or so while he was sitting out uh, I think those things are important and it's no different in my opinion than when other mutual friends of ours who have gone through hard times professionally, that's when they sort of need to hear from folks most that, Hey, you haven't forgotten about them and you're appreciative of them and all of those things. So I think in staying in contact that way, which was mostly social and personal, there was never a moment of no, do it this way or do it that way. It just didn't happen. All right. Well, there's... So, so poor put upon Vince who had to go sit at home in his mansion just because he paid out $20 million for pussy. And I, I thought it was important that we not forget about him. And if we make sure that he knows that we're still there for him, when he comes back and marches in to take back the company. And once I realized he still had all the stock, I said, I'm going to pay him a visit once a month and just say, hey, here's your favorite candy. And I also got you sandwiches and meet these paralegals I just ran into on yes. the way here. They were they were lined up at the guard shack, but I got them passed on through. <laughs> you know what, Jace? I'm looking at the notes here. He put it here. Brandon Thurston tweeted out. I guess it refers to the next thing. He says it again. Chances seem low. There's a real negative consequence here, but I wouldn't be surprised if the comment is pointed to in a future shareholder complaint or encourages SEC scrutiny. As it could be claimed, the company knew Vince's exit was not what they said it was in disclosures. Bingo. It's the same thought I had, but I guess Nick Khan says more about it here. Let's hear this. Were you surprised that he stepped down? I was surprised in the moment. Um, but once I thought about it uh, for a couple of days, it made total sense to me. Uh, I wouldn't say it caught me off guard because, again, we were on the inside sort of feeling uh, a bit of the pressure that was going on. So it certainly seemed, again, the right thing at the right time. Definitely surprised in the moment after I digested it, it made total sense. Were you surprised that he's 
started to inch his way back? No, no, that, that's Vince. Yeah. Anyone who knows him who thought with a tweet, because I think he tweeted, you know, hey, I'm 77 now, time for me to call it a day or something to that effect, you know, when he stepped down. Anyone who believed that was permanent doesn't know him. That was never going to happen. Uh, but I'm appreciative of the fact that he gave it the five, six months, let the dust settle a little bit, and then coming back in the way that he's come back. Ladies and gentlemen, I present my final piece of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly, he said it earlier, kind of, but there he just laid it out. Yeah, he just clarified it. Yeah, we knew it wasn't going to be long. We just had to let the heat die down. Okay. But again, what else is he going to say? Then he'll just get fired too. Why do the interview? I mean, not that it's the, the most scandalous. And I mean, we're talking about it here, but by and large, no one gives a shit. But what advantage is there for him, Nick Khan, the CEO who doesn't really have a public presence to do this interview here? Is it to build up WWE's brand with people who don't, who are, who listen to a sports podcast as opposed to a wrestling podcast? What do you think it is? Well, I, maybe it's to, maybe he thought he was trying to mitigate any uh, backlash from from this by acting. Oh, nothing to see here, folks. We're calm. Everything's you know continuing as normal. It's of course it was expected that this would happen. There's it's not panic. Maybe that's what he was thinking, and he went too far in the other direction. Yeah, we knew it all along. <laughs> Here's the next question: How much did Vince coming back have to do with the company doing well without him? How much of him wanting to come back had to do with the fact that the company did really well without him? I mean, you guys had a little bit of a resurgence creatively. I think in the in the wrestling community, people were super pleased with some of the moves and some of the pushes and kind of felt like the snow globe just got sh got shook. And in a good way, you you flipped it where AEW had all this momentum. And then all of a sudden, by the end of last year, it felt like WWE had a lot of the momentum. Do you think that bothered him? I don't think so. You, you, what do you think? I think it bothered him. Tell me. What's I do. I, I think, well, I think when you've created something and especially something you spent 50 years of your life on and you were the integral force of every decision that was ever made and then all of a sudden you're out of it, you want, there's part of you that wants to think, eh, I was super important. Like this, this should kind of go downhill and it did it. It was the opposite. I think that's hard to deal with. I get it. I, I think, <laughs> Again, you know, having been on the inside and keep in mind as a publicly traded company, if there was an official succession plan that would have had to be filed, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. I think the succession plan in his mind is the one that he put in place when he stepped down, which was Paul Triple H runs creative and Stephanie and I, you know, co-run uh, or help to run the company, if you will, with yeah. Steph, his daughter as the chairwoman. So to me, I, I never got a sense from him of any sort of bitterness or anything like that. He seemed for the first month of his hiatus thrilled. And if you think about it, even from your own career as an outside observer of it, how hard you've worked, a yeah. month off would be fucking amazing, right? I think he went to Italy, whatever it was, the things that we all wish we could do while we're in the mix of, let's say, quote unquote, empire building. Yeah. First month was amazing. I 
I got to stop for a second. I'm kind of getting sick of Nick. We we have more to listen to, but it just the way he talks, it just I don't know. Slimy is the word, but <laughs> no, smooth, slick. I'd go smooth and slick. He's not all the way into friendly Freddy uh, slimy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, let's go back to uh, slick, slick Nick, slick Nick. I think by month five, he was starting to get ready to return. And I think the strategic alternative process is a real one. I think he's hyped for it. Um, I haven't seen any sort of heat uh, from him towards anybody who's at WWE with WWE. There's no commentary from him. Yeah, it's because Stephanie resigned. So you could technically (laughs) say I haven't seen any heat with him and anyone at WWE because his daughter went home. Certainly to me, and I've been in touch with him, as you might imagine, a lot in the past week. There's no, why did, you know, Paul and you hire this? Or why did Steph and you do that? There's been none of that. Yeah, because he already had Bruce to talk to. <clears throat> Tell me what they did. And then he found out. And now he's back. What do you think of it so far, Jim? Well, you know, I will agree. No, it's ridiculous. The concept that Vince saw the company was doing better or even as good without him. At No, that's. I was around Vince long enough. Again, it's been a long time and his mind has changed somewhat. But no, there has been no change in business that would be large enough in any increment to get Vince McMahon's attention. Just because the the fans said, oh, we like the creative better or the ratings are up slightly or maybe the house show tickets have bumped up a little bit and obviously... He's going to attribute a lot of that to Cena on that particular program and other things. But nevertheless, that hasn't been enough to even get Vince's attention as an increase that you should be proud of, I'm pretty sure. Nor does he give a fuck that anybody's happy that any of the talent that he wanted to let go, they brought back. That's small potatoes to his. He is, as we've mentioned, He's either gotten information or come to believe on his own that they need to do this sale uh, quickly along with the starting the rights fee thing because it may not turn out the way they want. He wants to maximize what they get while they can get it. So that's probably it, it probably wasn't his plan when he stepped down because he didn't know he was going to step down. All that stuff blew up when people heard about it. Maybe he was discussing this plan, and that's why he got stooged, because somebody wasn't on board with it. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he sitting out to let the heat uh, die down, he either got or furthered this idea, and it has absolutely, in his mind, nothing, I am sure, to do with whether or not fans are happy to see people back or there's been a slight uptick in business. We're talking about, instead of a slight uptick, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year difference in what they might get versus what he thinks they may get if he does this now the way he's doing it. That's where he's at mentally, I'm pretty goddamn sure. Here's Nick Khan being asked about the board shakeups and the role of the board, which, by the way, he's a member of. (laughs) At the same time, like there was some pretty dramatic board shakeup stuff. He brought back Michelle and George, who he fired a few years ago. Um, a couple of people left the board. Why did people leave the board and why, why did he feel like he had to do that? Explain the business piece of that to me. I think from the business point of view, I think the George and Michelle thing 
you know, WWE, as you know, is a unique product. Yeah. And I think it's one thing that you and I have bonded over over the years is that you were a fan, you are a fan, I was a fan, I am a fan. And it's sort of like this insider thing. So I think with George and Michelle, who I have nothing but good history with, keep in mind, they left the company, yep. I think eight or nine months before I joined the company. So this was not a, you know, hey, let's bring me in while he moves others out. I think it was a deliberate process by him over that course of eight to nine months to figure out who he wanted to try to have in the seat. Uh, but they know the company and they're insiders and there's a shorthand with them. So I think as he engages in this, you know, potential transaction to have folks there that know the company, that know, hey, maybe certain things that happened in the past shouldn't have happened hmm. or in a modern day uh, point of reference culture, which I always try to look at these things from, Bill, that, hey, certain things that were acceptable years ago aren't acceptable now. Um, I think over time you can evolve with these things and the modern day rules should apply to modern day. I don't think it should apply to the past. Let's stop it there for a moment. What what, did, what what do you say about that? There was no real direct rational reason for him to segue into, well, things that used to fly don't fly anymore. When he's talking about Vince brought back two executives that were there three years ago. Is there a massive cultural difference between 2023 and 2020 as far as what used to fly and doesn't fly? So that was not, but he had to get that in there somewhere as if to say, well, you know, back in the seventies, Vince could have lined all these paralegals up against the wall and just fucking cornhole them with no repercussions whatsoever, but you can't do it anymore. Is that what that is? When are they bringing Johnny Ace back? Boy, well, I don't know. I think that that barn door may be closed on that particular sway-backed mule, but go go ahead with old jolly old St. Nick. All right, counter, please. It seemed like he wanted to get more of the board on his side, so he moved out the three people probably who voted against him and moved in a couple of people that he liked. So what, ding, ding, what ding. is the business reason to do that? If he's already has the controlling stake, why does he need a more favorable board to him? Or am I reading that wrong? So I think it's a nuanced thing uh, on the sales process. I think it's an annoyance thing. You have to look at successful business people like Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin and how they take control of their property and do things. Traditionally, so if you're you're looking at, and I'm sure you are, the News Corp Fox potential remerger, you've seen that a special committee of the independent board has been assigned to oversee that process and to determine whether that's what's best for the shareholders. This is different. With the controlling shareholder, Vince is going to run that process. Yeah. So to have board members in who understood that with the controlling shareholder, this is going to be the way it is and people who would embrace that, I think ultimately that was the determining but factor. But if Vince just said, I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell WWE to anybody, like I'm going to sell to Netflix tomorrow. Can he just do it? Does the board have to, does the board ultimately have any say? That's the part I don't get. If he's the controlling stake, what does the board even matter? Why even have a board? Great question. But, and by the yeah. way, to your point on, hey, I'm paraphrasing here, but it seems like he got friendlier, you know, board members in last week or, or whenever that was. I think the, the misperception <laughs> always was that this board six months ago, six years ago, hey, they were just being puppeteered by Vince. Was not the case. Yeah. As you saw it this summer, it was a very real board. It was a very competent board. 
I believe George. Wait, hold on. He, yeah, he, that's, he's using that's, the example of the guys they kicked out. Yes, that's why they had to get rid of it because it was a real competent board. So then two quit and three were fired and Vince replaced the three with three that he wanted. And now it's a very incompetent board. You saw how well it functioned over the summer without Vince. So we decided to switch things up a little bit and, and give him complete and change control. half of it. Virgin <laughs> Michelle, obviously real, you know, more than competent people who understand this process. But no, my understanding is even as a controlling shareholder, as long as it's an unaligned, fair process, if you will, the controlling shareholder can control it. If there was some handshake deal or he only wanted to declare, hey, I'm a buyer, not a seller, I'm going to buy out the other shares with some sort of financial partner, then it would be the board controlling that process. So that's not what he appears to be looking to do. Well, there's uh, Nick Khan's comments about what was he commenting on? The board of directors, what they actually do, and Vince's role in replacing everyone who wouldn't go along with everything he wanted to do with people who would, which is what happened. Yes. But it sounded great when Nick talked about it. I'd like to go through all that myself. It sounds so, like so much fun. How would you feel about Nick Khan representing you as an agent? Boy, I'll tell you what, he is a silver-tongued devil, as they used to say. Uh, I can see where if he was on your side, he might get you a good deal. But at this point, he's having to he's having to make some chicken salad out of chicken shit with what he's got to work with as far as, as admitting that, yeah, Vince came back and, like Cartman, he's going to do what he wants. He's obviously painting a very rosy red picture about what's going on over there. Everything sounds like it's on the up and up, and there's not been any problems with the founder there or not there or taking over the board or whoever's on the board. Just everything is lovely. But what about Stephanie? Let's go to this. Well, so you go backwards. Triple H, who seemed like he was running everything creatively or at least was a huge force, and he gets kind of shoved to the side. He had some health issues, to be fair. but. I think people were surprised. NXT, Triple H's baby, that kind of basically gets the plug pulled out of it. It's still going, but it's not nearly the same. I, I thought it had so much more me momentum four or five years ago. And Stephanie leaves a year ago or it takes us, she's going to be a mom and the whole thing. And then Vince steps down and all of a sudden Paul and, and Stephanie are back and you're running it and things are going well. And now, Vince is back and Stephanie steps down. This is hard to keep track of. I understand. <laughs> Why did, so with, with Stephanie's whole thing, I'm just, I care about this company. I care about my father. I just need to, I need to help out or why did she step down? I still don't get that part. So two, two things on that. Number one, it's important to anyone listening to this. If you're going to join a family business and you're not inside the family, as I am not inside the family, stay out of the family business part. <laughs> Fair. Right, that's rule number one. And by the way, I know you're a fan of the show Succession. Yes. You reference it, so am I. Um, I. I was saying this to my wife this weekend. When you watch that show and you see all of the family members and everything that goes on and you see the outsiders in the company and you look at those outsiders, the non-family members, you say, what an idiot. Why are you working there? I guess that would be me. You'd be <laughs> like the lawyer who got involved with the Culkin character. Yeah, yeah. C correct. Not Jerry. Yeah. Who, or, or, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Not Jerry. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, but who's, yeah, yeah.
Do you watch that show on HBO? I've not. I've not said it's completely uh, unknown to me. Are you Jerry? Who's Jerry? Who's Jerry? I know what you're talking right, about. Right, right. So, to to me, that, that's obviously you know on a side, but I don't get involved in the family business. That is rule number one. Just as if you were in some dispute with a family member. But when you say family business, you're talking like family stuff, not actual correct. business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I don't get in the family side of the family business. It's not my purview. I don't insert myself. I don't try to insert myself. I like to consider myself instead of a pot stirrer, someone who more simmers the pot with these things. So that's number one. Well, I'll smoke the pot. You know, he says he doesn't get involved with family stuff. The question was about why Stephanie stepped down. Was that a family thing or was that a, okay, I've done my time, I'm leaving? Which well, is the way no, it was that, that, was, that was, again, a going around his elbow to get to his wrist. He managed to talk for about two minutes there without actually even mentioning Stephanie's name or answering the question. But he did indicate that it was a family interaction that it was best he stay out of. Well, here's more from Nick Khan and Bill Simmons on Stephanie. Well, it seemed like for a few months there, she was going around, she was meeting with a bunch of people and it was kind of the make everything okay again tour with a whole bunch of different See sponsors, how you still have your, your ground on these things. Yeah, but she was just, you know, things got a little crazy there, but we're here to write the ship. And when I heard that, I was like, Vince isn't coming back if they're doing this. If she's going around and meeting all these leaders and different people, this means to me that this is a new era of the company, but now it's an old era of the company again. Do you think, do you think Vince learned any lessons over this time or were we just going back to where we were a year ago? Well, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think Vince is really happy where the company's at. Certainly that's what he's conveyed to me. Keep in mind. So his lesson is I'm going to stay out of this and just concentrate on the sale. Yeah. What, what he said to me and what <laughs> I've certainly experienced is, hey, I'm 77 <laughs> now. I want to explore all strategic alternatives. Is there a sale out there? Is there a merger out there? What would make sense most for the company? Which is why when that Saudi thing we referenced earlier, and we have a great relationship. No, we didn't reference that yet. We didn't talk Saudi. I thought you mentioned We talked it, right but, before but, the pod, yeah. yeah. There's a fake story last fake. week. Fake. 100% fake, 100% made up, saying that there was an imminent transaction or whatever it was. Totally false. That you were going to sell pri basically privately Correct. to some Saudi money group and that was going to be how this ended it seemed i i it, and then i checked the person who had the and they had like 5500 followers yeah but they, then the way the way the world works this time in 2023 people just ran with it for the next 18 hours yeah, it was absurd it, it was nuts and by the way that person subsequently took down that tweet right because again when i'm saying 100 percent false it was 100 percent false so i mean 100 percent. like if you leave it up we're gonna cut off your head it's 100% false. <laughs> Don't report on the Saudi deal. In this process, he's there to oversee it. It's his controlling share. I'm involved in it. Triple H is involved in it. The board's obviously involved in it. Triple H being on the board, uh, as I have the good fortune of being as well. And we're going to see how it plays out. It should not be a lengthy process. Once again, the question that hasn't been asked is, why did you vote against him coming back? Because he was on the board of directors. Right. That's the question that has they not been They voted against Vince before they voted for Vince That's after right. the shakeup. But otherwise, you know, the Nick Khan, his voice is very soothing. As a matter of fact, they ought to call him Dr. Somnambulism. 
I'm starting to get sleepy. Well, Jim, here's Nick Khan talking about if Vince will be on camera anytime soon. Oh. Are there plans for Vince to be on camera and involved in any plots? Not at this moment. Not at this moment. No is the answer. That's like a non-denial denial. No. No is the answer to that question. Could it change? In a few months, sure, it could change. But that would be Paul and Vince, you know, being on the same page about it. I don't see it right now. It would only change if Paul and Vince were on the same page, not if Vince decided I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't give a shit who's running any division here. Well, besides that, I liked it the way he worded it. Is Vince going to be in on any plots? And Nick should have said, no, not any more than the one he's already involved in. Here is the question about if Vince wanted to sell the company or the whole thing or just a piece of it. What's the sale process without telling me too much? All right, because I know you have some restrictions, but you have a bunch of suitors. You have a price in your head. Vince obviously wants to sell. Um, I I, Actually, sidebar question. Why does Vince want to sell? Is it an age thing? Is it like, what am I going to do? But the end, you know, I'm looking at the finish line a little bit here. Why not? Maybe this will be my final victory lap. Why sell now out of all times? I think he's ready. Uh, you know, I can't describe it as anything more than that after the last five months. And, and keep in mind, again, you engaged in empire building. You're still yeah. engaged in empire building. At a certain point, it's like, okay, how much more of this empire am I going to build? We continue to build it. He continued to build it until he stepped down five months or so ago. But I think in looking at a world of consolidation, the sort of you know, standalone enterprise that owns 99% of its intellectual property. Yeah. With the media rights. And a library and, and media and rights. A library, right? With the media rights coming up in October of 24, which means the process starts in a few months on that, certainly to go lock in a bunch of long-term deals and then to sell or try to sell to everybody doesn't make sense. The timing was now. So even if you look at our annual shareholders. So you're saying you want to sell you sell the company and then you do the deals. The The new person that comes in, that would be their first order of the business would be to bang out the new 2024 media right deals. That's the goal. Unless yeah. one of the media conglomerates ends up buying it directly. Right. Right. Then they certainly wouldn't want it encumbered by long-term media rights deals elsewhere. So you have... So let's stop there because that kind of goes into what we talked about before with the idea that one of these companies that buys it is one of the ones that already has one of the media deals, so you can kind of cut off whatever, $2.5 billion over a few years that won't be in the company coffers because the owner will not be making that money. What do you think about what he's saying about the timing and about basically we got to rush and do this right now before the next deal? Well, I mean, that's what we've been saying. And I think that's obviously pretty much what they're doing. And and the thing is, you made the point, we've talked about it, that, okay, if I am paying you for a program that you produced to put on my network, then yes, in some respect, it is a good idea for me, instead of paying you a billion dollars for the next five years, I just pay you a couple billion dollars for the whole goddamn thing from start to finish. Except then, am I going to continue to pay myself the, the the rights fees that the company that you just sold me was getting? And then I've, yeah, I've saved the money I was going to spend, but I've spent a lot more money and it's on a company that's taking in a lot less money because I'm not paying it anymore. So there's, this shit's complicated. And I just read that crazy Eddie book, so I'm 
expecting the new owners to open the books and be like, oh, shit. Yeah, as as long as they don't pay Connecticut sales tax, they might be all right. So for people listening, you have possible the streamers, all the usual suspects. You have a place like Endeavor, which has already bought UFC and figured out how to mine that out. Well, I'll tell you what, they're going to just talk for a little bit more about who could potentially buy it and Vince wanting to sell. You've gotten the gist of it. There's a few other big things we got to play before we wrap this up. Well, Jim, going back to something we talked about earlier in the show, the breaking news from the Wall Street Journal, here's Nick Khan earlier this week talking about Rita Chatterton. And it looks like they're, they're, we should mention the Rita, Chatter, Rita Chatterton um, possible lawsuit, or it is a lawsuit, or Vince has to deal with that. Do you feel like um, suitors are going to wait to see how that plays out and how bad that's going to be? And is there going to be more details like that coming out, or are they just plowing ahead? I think everyone's just plowing ahead. You just move forward, right? Because in all of these businesses, there's never a clean, clear path. Yeah. There's always some encumbrance, something in the way, some hurdle in the way that you have to get around or get through. So I see that like I would any other uh, item like it. Well, it sounds like they got through the hurdle earlier today. Yeah, the, the hurdle was flattened before he did this interview and he knew that already. What a, what a way to phrase it, though. What do you think about the boss being accused of rape. Well, you know, it's just one of those things you just, yeah, in, you in, just in business. There's these, there's these hurdles that we, uh, I mean, he's probably and also to be honest and fair to Mr. Khan. He's probably just looking at it like a lawsuit. Cause you get a million of them in, in the big businesses he's involved in. He doesn't give a fuck what the origination of it was. He wasn't even there. Well, Jim, here's something that a lot of people are talking about. Nick Khan talking about Tony Khan and AEW. So one recurring theme with Vince's career was that he kept having a challenger or there kept being these moments where it seemed like things might fall apart and then they didn't. And in the last couple of years, you had AEW. They come in as, as probably the most polished challenger you guys have had in 20 years. You know, they had deep pockets, the TV, TV station attached to them. and somebody in Tony Khan running their business who was a real wrestling fan who really dipped into the history of wrestling in a bunch of different ways with some of the angles and realized that he had to be a little bit of a different competitor to you versus like what some other people have done, which is either get older wrestlers and try to compete with you that way, or basically just do what WCW did, which was just, we're going to do the same thing as you. We're just going to try to spend more money to do it better. They kind of countered it a little bit. They grabbed some ECW pieces and some indie wrestling things and some all Japan and all this stuff. And it seemed like a real competitor. It seemed like they had at least in the, in the wrestling. This guy what? sounds like he knows just enough to be dangerous. I got to say, he's been, he's been doing a good job with this interview, Bill Simmons, but where's the all Japan influence on AEW? I'd like to know. I'll watch that segment. Community of the nerds and the people who love the five-star matches, all that stuff. They kind of tapped into that. Um, at what point did you feel like they were a threat? Well, how do you think they're doing now? Not as well. Right. I think uh, a couple things. I, I've never met. The guy. Although I think they're having a better 2023 than 22. But anyway, go ahead. I, I think I've never met the kid. Tony Khan seems like a nice kid to me. Uh, I don't know him. Uh, I have met his dad, uh, who randomly I sat next to at some like sports business luncheon that Stephanie and I went to a year and a half or so ago. I thought the dad was as impressive as could be. I think. There was a piece on him in the New York Times a year or so prior to that. 
self-made billionaire, I believe Pakistani immigrant, could not be more impressed with him. Um, I like the pivots. I, I'm not as big of an NFL fan as you are. I don't follow it the way you do. Um, but I like the pivots he made. You make a mistake in hiring a certain coach a couple years ago, get out of that mistake, figure it out again. Yeah. So could not be more impressed with the dad. He made his money in the auto parts business, I believe. So he knows that inside out. I don't believe he's involved on the wrestling side of the business. I'm talking about storylines outside of financing it, financing it. No, he's got the, just the pockets. Yeah, he, he has the pockets and that's awesome. And I'm sure his kid appreciates it, but I don't, I was never threatened by that, but I'm, I tend not to be threatened. I don't feel threatened by anyone on anything. It's, it's just not how I do business. So I don't mean like, you know. No, I get you. Right. If some guy came up to me with a rattlesnake in my face, yeah, I guess I'd feel <laughs> right. threatened by that. But let me stop for a second here. <laughs> Very complimentary of Shad Khan. He has called Tony Khan the kid the or kid. a kid. And, or his kid. And that's it. And if you can't hear the disrespect there, I mean, it's quite obvious. Well, and uh, he takes... Shad Khan legitimately, incredibly, as a self-made billionaire and a big businessman in, in other businesses and other the sports teams and whatever. And as I believe I've said before, Tony's his own worst enemy. They have never in that office, and rightfully so, taken Tony Khan seriously as a wizard of high finance and big business. I think similar to you, Bill, I've never seen you scared. I, I just don't think you see people that way. I, I don't think when you were on your rise as primarily a writer at that time, I think you probably put targets on certain people who you thought held an esteemed position who didn't deserve that position. Yeah. Uh, and then you overtook them with your work, but it all came down to your work, not their work. So for me, and I know I've used the quote before, it's that Jimmy Iovine uh, I think it's at the end of that Dr. Dre, Jimmy Iovine documentary on HBO yeah. where he says, you, you know, in your career, you got to be like a horse, a horse, you put blinders on it. Why do you put blinders on it? Horse looks to the left, looks to the right, stumbles, it breaks its leg. And you know what happens after that? I've always looked at business the same way. I don't care what anyone else is doing. I care what we're doing. And as long as we can have the best product on with the best talent and the best writers, I think we're going to be in good shape. Well, let's stop it there, and that'll be the last audio clip we play from Nick Khan. What do you think of his thoughts about AEW competition, the Khan family? Well, it, it, again, he went around his elbow to get to his wrist, and and a lot of uh, uh, pleasant platitudes there and everything. But it is true they they pay attention to what other companies are doing, but they primarily focus on their own shit in a situation like this. And of course, he's going to say we have the best writers and the best talent, blah blah blah. But I think they adjusted, and I've said this before, they adjusted their opinion or assessment of AEW and or Tony Khan and or the threat to them very shortly after the AEW television program went on the air and they started seeing what they were dealing with and how it was coming together. And they determined at that point that he was going to be an annoyance in going after some of the same talent or paying enough money that it's going to cause them to have to bid a little bit more for things or whatever the fuck, but that it wasn't going to be 
anywhere near the fight of their life. And they've, they've given the WWE has given themselves more trouble over the last three years than AEW has either through the, the bad booking or Vince's fucking public shenanigans. So I, and I think that's what Nick Khan is, you know, referring to in very thin, thin veiled threats is what I'm trying to say, uh, that they don't, take Tony Khan seriously and they're talking about billions of dollars in a worldwide global business and not, you know, he has all the respect in the world for the guy's dad, but the guy's dad is giving the kids some money to play with. And that's what he, what they've got. Tony Khan in the past has had several moments. I think during the, one of the media scrums, maybe two of them where obviously it got to him. Some of the things between WWE and AEW. And he is, I think the quote was, I'm not Jim Crockett. I have a whole lot more money. Yeah. They've said something or, or given him some impression that he's not happy with them because he knows they're not taking him seriously. And, but at the same time, comments like that and a lot of the way he behaves in public and melts down and, and just the, the product. Yeah. If you've got a hundred million dollars to spend, you can make a hundred million dollars, but you can't start a global juggernaut that will be worth six billion and be dealing with all these people in three years of using mostly fucking indie rific fucking guys and occasionally some lucky signings. The big question is and has been for a while, but if Shad Khan hears this interview, because again Shad Khan owns an NFL team, Bill Simmons is a pretty big deal in terms of uh uh sports journalism, I guess I'll call it. If he hears this interview, what does he think about, yeah, I really have a lot of respect for this guy, and here's why. And it's, you know, everything he said about Shad Khan are things that everyone would respect about someone. But the kid, but the kid, the kid. <laughs> when you hear that, and you know that you're financing your son, just the way he said it, very harshly, what do you think when you hear that? It sounds like that Tony has done a good enough job of making back enough of what he spent that his dad is still on the in the range of, hey, I'm letting him have fun with his inheritance, you know, while I'm still alive and can see it. That was his quote a few years ago. And it's not like that, you know, this guy, his net worth, as we mentioned, uh, we look it up, give or take several hundred million, I'm sure, for accuracy, but it's worth technically more than the WWE is worth, so he can afford to play with some money, but he can't afford to liquidate three quarters of what he has to, you know, purchase the WWE for cash. And I don't know that he would still want to shad that is get a, an investor or any partners and try to take that step just because his son has become enamored with wrestling. So, you know, again, but I understand that Nick Khan would, and he probably wants to talk, Nice to Shad Khan because Shad Khan is still a billionaire and owns a football team and, and whatever the fuck else they own across the pond and might want to do some business at some point on something completely unrelated because Nick Khan's that big Hollywood wheeler and dealer, but he doesn't have to impress Tony because at this point that would be a step down. Nick Khan is a bigger deal in, in the world these days than Tony Khan is. Just we know Tony because we're all wrapped up in the wrestling. Nick Khan talks to movie stars and shit. Well, there it is. What are your final thoughts on Nick Khan? 
once again, very smooth and uh, say, it talks a lot and says nothing, but without cussing. That's very, very admirable. He said a lot in the things that he didn't say and some of the things he alluded to, which we'll see if anyone else reacts to. See if you can say a few things and take very short time to do it. Or take a very long time to do it. No, that still take a very short time to do it. So we get the fuck out of here. All right. Well, you know what? No song this week. We'll return with a song next week. And we'll return with a regular drive through next week. And of course, the Jim Cornette experience this weekend, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget about the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll be the very first thing that pops up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Don't forget to follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget about the wrestling news each and every day TheWrestlingNews.com or Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Jim, Cornet's Collectibles, and of course, the lovey-dovey cameo special. What is it? The St. Valentine's Day Massa Cameos, Saturday, January 28th, noon Eastern. Get them while they last. At JimCornet.com or at Cameo, somewhere. The drive-thru is brought to you. Both of those places. Both of those places. The drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until this weekend on The Experience and next week back here on The Drive-Thru, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! <laughs> Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fuck and Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dork order bomb fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella. And Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. 
Yeah, they play with this Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven, Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. And now here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass.